Alright, hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker, and uh, today's a special treat. So uh, this is going to be continuing my solo show, the Jesus Mythicism Refuted show, uh, part three. So in this episode, I'm going to finish off, finally finish off, looking at the secular non-Christian or non-Christian sources, both pagan and uh, Jewish, attesting to the truth of the minimal historical Jesus. Next time, starting in part four, I'm going to turn my attention to the negative evidences against the truth of the minimal historical Jesus. Those uh, arguments, those pro-mythicist arguments. Um, and then finally, once I complete that, we're going to return to the positive evidences, looking at the massive, uh, incredible, strong, incredibly strong evidence we have from Christian sources that attest to the truth of a minimal historical Jesus. So that's the plan of action. So here in part three, we're finishing off the non-Christian sources. And I want to look at archaeological sources and then follow that up with Talmudic or rabbinic Jewish sources that might be able to prove the historical Jesus. Now, just an edit uh, before I continue on with the previous recording. Uh, so I'm not going to be doing the Jewish Talmudic sources, I realized. By the time I got to the end of the archaeological sources, I was already close to three hours. Um, so. In part three, I'm going to be covering the archaeological sources, the Nazareth inscription, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Telpiate tomb, and as well, uh, Jesus's new home, Jesus' home that was discovered in 2015. So that's what I'm going to cover in part three. Then in part four, I'll get into the Jewish Talmudic sources, part five, the negative evidences, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to give you that correction note. Um, but yeah, back to the previous recording. And starting with the archaeological sources first. So obviously, uh, when it comes to New Testament scholarship and Jesus uh, scholarship or Jesus studies, there's an embarrassment of, of riches that Christians have to draw upon, archaeologically speaking, to prove various aspects of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life and death, and that the gospel writers were, were accurate. Uh, in specific details in some cases as to what they report about what Jesus did in the Gospels as well as uh, the Apostles in the early church period and that sort of thing so you know for, for example just to name a few off top look we, we've discovered uh, various the, the pools of Bethsaida uh, that Jesus healed people at we've found ruins of the houses so that sheds light on the gospel record like when they brought them through the the paralyzed man through the roof to be healed that sheds we understand what that means now archaeologically because we've discovered that Johannin discovered in the 1960s like actual crucifixion victim with the nail still embedded in there proving that the gospels are correct in their description of Jesus various various other details that archaeologically uh, confirm the gospel accounts uh, related to Jesus and his apostles as recorded in the New Testament literature. However, as many of the skeptics in the audience are and mythicists are probably rightly saying, so what? Who cares if you can confirm that uh, some place that's mentioned in the gospels was real? Or Pontius Pilate, you know, skeptics were, uh, hyper skeptics said, oh, that's ridiculous. It's only in the gospels. There was no Pontius Pilate until, oops, we found archaeological proof that he existed and we got the titles right um, but still so what that doesn't Pontius Pilate existed cool that doesn't prove there was a minimal historical Jesus the pool of Bethsaida okay they 
the gospel writers incorporated certain historically accurate elements in their in their writings about Jesus, but that do, none of that necessarily proves that there was in fact a minimal historical Jesus. How do you take the archaeology archaeological findings confirming certain details in the gospel accounts and show that that proves that there was in fact a minimal historical Jesus? Well, in the first place, you could use that uh, to try and argue for the general reliability of the gospels and say, well, if they're generally reliable, then therefore probably Jesus existed. That's not what we're going to do here. We're not going to argue. This is uh, archaeological section is not about Christian sources. We're not trying to authenticate the gospels and then say that the gospels prove Jesus, at least in this part. That will be a future episode. Right here, we're just looking at secular archaeology from pagan and Jewish non-Christian sources. So that means that I need to look at somehow the archaeological findings directly or implicitly of their own accord prove there's a minimal historical Jesus. And on that front, it really narrows down the scope of the types of archaeological findings that will be relevant for proving a minimal historical Jesus. And on that front, I think that there are only three that we need to cover in this show. So that, that's going to be the Nazareth inscription, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and then the Shroud of Turin. Obviously with the Shroud of Turin, that is sort of a separate topic. I'm not going to get into that into this episode. If you're interested in the historicity of the Shroud. So in the first place, how do we link, how does that link to Jesus? Well, it confirms the gospel accounts of his crucifixion on earth and scourging that he died because he's in rigor mortis um, and there's no decomposition liquids in sufficient quantity found in the shroud. So the images must have been formed and the body removed from the shroud somehow before sufficient amounts of decomposition liquids formed. And the images were formed while the body was in a state of rigor mortis. So uh, that would confirm that there was a historical Jesus. He was wrapped in an earthly cloth that we still have today. But again, this is getting into the shroud solo show. And I'm not going to get into that in this episode. If you're interested in the details about the historicity of the Shroud, forget about whether it's a miracle or not. Pretend you're Barry Schwartz. You can we you think we can prove that it does date back to a historical Jesus. Well, in that case, that would be an archaeological proof that the minimal historical Jesus existed. And beyond that, even more than a minimal historical Jesus, we can prove the crucifixion, scourging, and the possibly implies the resurrection from the dead without respect to the mechanism as to how that happened in the formation of these images. So this would be incredible archaeological evidence. It's something Dr. Gary Habermas mentions in his book on the historical Jesus. I'm not going to get into that in this show. I just wanted to mention that third archaeological discovery that we have that does prove a minimal historical Jesus and beyond. If you're interested in the details as to well, the evidence is for and against the Shroud of Turin, go to my Shroud Solo Series Part 3 episode. That's where I get into all the details, you know, does he fit a Jewish man, Jewish burial customs, does the cloth fit the textiles of, of the first century AD, and all of those details are handled in my Shroud Solo Show Part 3, so I'll just defer you to that. So that means we're going to focus in this show, Jesus Mythicism Refuted Part 3, on two archaeological evidences, that Nazareth inscription and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So let's get into that, starting with the Nazareth inscription. Okay, so what is the Nazareth inscription? So the Nazareth inscription is a Greek inscription on a white marble tablet measuring about 24 inches by 15 inches or 
uh, you know, if you're in the metric system, 60 centimeters tall, 37.5 centimeters wide, and 6 centimeters deep. The exact time and place of its discovery are unfortunately not known. The historical provenance of how it was discovered isn't known because um, back in 1878, it became an addition to the private uh, Froner collection. Uh, so he was a guy who collected ancient inscriptions and manuscripts back in the late 19th century. He was a private collector. And the only thing we have uh, from him is a quick note. Obviously, he wasn't scrupulous. There weren't the standards uh, back then for authenticating objects, stuff like that. So he just has a little note. This marble was sent from Nazareth in 1878. So that's how it gets its name, the Nazareth inscription, because of where it was sent from. That's all we know, literally, about how this guy, private collector, got his hands on it. After that, uh, when he died in 1925, the entire collection was acquired by the Paris National Library, where the National Nazareth inscription was rediscovered by various scholars, um, and that caused one scholar to translate it and publish that in 1930, at which point, all heck broke loose. Uh, scholars were captivated by this. Nobody questioned it, that it was in fact authentic from Nazareth and everything like that. We got a flurry of publications from 1932 onwards. And what it is, so it's a gr written in Greek, Greek Uniceal script, um, and it appears to be an imperial edict, or it claims to be an imperial edict from the emperor, uh, from Caesar, that was originally written in Latin. And then somebody translated that into Greek. Whereas this is sort of a, what's called a, what scholars call a quote-unquote rump version of the original uh, Latin or Greek translation of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of spelling mistakes in it and that sort of thing. There are phrases that are commonplace. The author badly translated the original Latin of the decree. Uh, even the Greek itself was misspelled in places. So, um, what the consensus view in scholarship is that this is a rump version or abridged version of a Greek translation of the original uh, diatagma or the, uh, the original edict itself, which was originally in Latin by the emperor. So what does this edict actually say? Okay, so the main translation here, uh, it says, quote unquote, Edict of Caesar. It is my decision concerning graves and tombs, whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members, that these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them or has moved sepulchre sealing stones against such a person I order that a judicial tribunal be created just just as is done concerning the gods in human religious observances even more so will it be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed you are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed but if someone does I wish that violator to suffer capital punishment under the title of tomb breaker so that's the translation here uh, according to most credible scholars like dr clyde billington for example and there's a couple notes here so the the greek word for edict is diatagma 
And basically what that means for, it suggests to most modern readers some sort of imperial legal process. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the Nazareth inscription is almost certainly, as I said, a rump or abridged version of an imperial rescript. Um, so we had some skeptics who did a scientific test in 2020 that we'll find out a little bit more um, when we come to objections. But they say, they, they kind of said, well, look, because it says Edict of Caesar, it uses this word, it's absolutely not a rescript, it is an imperial edict, and that's unambiguously um, the case kind of thing. And they give certain reasons as to why it fits some of the common technical language or expressions used in Roman laws, such as it is my pleasure or malicious deception, stuff like that. Uh, but the actual historians themselves say, no, that's a little too simplistic. Uh, the word diatagma for edict, translated as edict, is almost certainly a rump or an abridged version of an imperial rescript. Now, interesting, this word diatagma is actually very rare in ancient Greek texts. You know, uh, it, it's not really, it only refer. there's less than a dozen usage of, of this word that appear in all existing ancient texts, and that's, in, that's even counting this Nazareth inscription. Um, now, two, two of these uses of this rare word are by the Roman Emperor Claudius, that will come into, that will be important later on when we come to an evaluation here. And also, interestingly, again, it's going to be important for the evaluation, a couple of scholars, Drs. Little and Scott's unabridged Greek-English lexicon uh, only lists eight ancient appearances of this word diatagma for the word edict, and one of these is in the New Testament, in the biblical book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 23, which reads, Edict of my king, diatagma to Basileos. Interesting. Um, you know, that's very similar to what's here, this diatagma uh, Caesaros, or Edict of Caesar, on the Nazareth inscription. Interesting little link. The New Testament has this word, very rare word for edict that was only used during the Emperor Claudius's reign. Does that, that kind of begs the question, did the author of Hebrews perhaps see the Nazareth inscription? We'll get into that when we get to it into an evaluation. But for right now, uh, we just wanted to see what it is this thing says. Now, it has to be admitted that there are some uh, differences. Some scholars translate this slightly differently. So they're the hyper-skeptic Richard Carrier, the Jesus mythicist, um, he translates this differently, slightly differently. And uh, he bases it off of um, other people who who's translated back in the 1930s and that sort of thing. But here's his translation of, the, of this text. It sat, quote unquote, edict of Caesar. It satisfies me that the graves and tombs that whoever for the cult worship of ancestors makes or for the cult worship of children or household members, that those graves and tombs remain unmoved throughout their existence. And if anyone charges that anyone has either destroyed them or in some other way made off with what was buried in them, or to another place with canavish malice, took these things for the purpose of doing injury to the buried, or had the door stone or other stones switched against that man who is accused, I order that a trial occur, just like a trial concerning the cult of worship of gods for the cult of worship of men. 
for it shall be much more necessary to honor the buried. So let no one at all move them. Otherwise that man I want condemned to death for the charge of digging through tombs. Okay, so a couple things. So you can see um, Richard Carrier as a mythicist and a hyper-skeptic seems to have sort of an agenda here. He wants to take the the focus off of uh, the guys be the bodies being robbed and that sort of thing and he's talking about well there's this family burial cult pagans 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 bling 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 so he's trying to say that this is not for Jews it's for pagans because it's talking about a family burial cult um, so he says look the main motivation for the law seems to have been a grievance against those who were depriving people of the right to pay cult to their dead ancestors and that's a circumstance that doesn't apply to Jews, it applies to pagans. Secondly, he also kind of, and this is Richard Carrier's own translation, it, it does have some basis in an earlier translation that's been outdated and falsified, but nonetheless, he uses this, and he says, well, it also doesn't aim at preventing the taking of bodies, but the moving of entire tombs and graves themselves. And that doesn't apply to Jesus or anything like that. Uh, you know, nobody moved Jesus' tomb or something like that. And then also the destroying of tombs. Um, and again, that makes no sense. So you can see the emphasis. He's, he's trying to paganize this and say, look, the emphasis isn't about destroying the bodies in the tomb or taking the bodies away. It's about destroying the tombs. And notice this. The, the law goes out to prohibit stealing a doorstone. So that's the sepulcher stone, right? Makes sense for Jesus. And also any stones in the thing. People were, you know, switching stones. He has this notion that certain people, he uses the word, he says it uses the word for a generic stone. So people were taking stones out of tombs, walls or alcoves and stuff like that and using it uh, for some other, some other use because they didn't want to use inferior stone, which is all they could afford. And then finally, the other thing is, he says, look, the edict goes out of its way and mentioned that body snatchers are stealing bodies to do injury to them, which again makes no sense to the empty tomb story of Jesus. Um, you know, the Christians didn't want to do injury to Jesus' body when they took it, allegedly. So, so yeah, these are some incon incongruities or whatever, as opposed to the mainstream true translation that's about obviously taking bodies and that's the actual proper translation of the Greek uh, you know moving uh, sepulcher stones and taking the bodies out to do whatever with them destroy them or um, you know it's not about moving tombs nobody could ever move tombs and that sort of thing so that's kind of a ridiculous translation there but yeah anyways we're, we're just at the point of what so so understand there is this difference in translation where hyperskeptics and mythicists try to translate it subtly differently uh, to put the emphasis on the tombs themselves and stuff like that so that it's not necessarily applicable to a Jewish context or to Jesus, um, but is more uh, akin to pagans and stuff like that and, and pagan uh, funeral practices. So, you know, in that case, it's important to work out, well, whose translation is correct the Jesus, the translation by a single guy the jesus mythicist who's invented his own translation or the translation that all historians 
in the 21st century more or less accept and think is really what's going on here. So, so let's kind of go th work through this to figure out the, uh, the correct translation of the Greek of the Nazareth inscription. Okay, so we're going to take this slow and steady because it's, it's important that we go through this step by step. So the first uh, Greek uh, translation that we need to know is again the toto mau to diatagma. That diatagma, remember, edict, the, the uh, very rare word. And it's interesting, um, most, it's fairly common for imperial rescripts like this to be treated as legal edicts, edicts in and of themselves. According to most scholars, Dr. Charlesworth, for example, in his book about documents illustrating the reigns of Claudius and Nero. Um, however, it's interesting because the Emperor Claudius himself calls one of his rescripts on Jewish rites this this toto mau to diatagma, or this edict of mine. He uses this specific word. And as will be seen below, this is an imperial rescript of the Emperor Claudius, which fits the pattern and vocabulary of the... Nazareth inscription very well. So there's this common literary uh, style that's unique to the Emperor Claudius. Again, hint, hint, hint. Um, this is going to be important. Okay, next up. So I mentioned that Carrier wasn't just making up this when it came to the Greek word Threskian uh, Progonon in line three, which is where he gets the translation, quote unquote, cult of their ancestors. Oh, who, who had cult of ancestor worship? Pagans, not Jews. So it must be about pagans and not Jews. And this goes back to, you know, F. D. Zuluet uh, in 1932, one of his famous articles said this, as well in 1952, Frank E. Brown translated it this way as well. So Carrier's not alone. He's reflecting some outdated scholarship and, and using that um, to justify his suggestion that the Nazareth inscription best fits a pagan Greco-Roman context rather than religious rituals performed at graves by relatives uh, within a Jewish context or something. But this isn't true because if you actually look at the Greek word threskion, um, that is actually best translated as quote-unquote religious observance, not cult of the ancestors but religious observance. And it's used five times in two known imperial rescripts dealing with the Jewish religion specifically. Absolute proof that this word was used for the Jewish religion specifically. Um, in, ver in at least two imperial rescripts and was used five times to describe a religious observance, not the cult of the ancestors, a religious observance. So yeah, it's, it's used the same way for the Jewish religion um, by the Jewish historian Josephus. He uses this exact word as describing Jews. And also, in addition, this same Greek word, uh, Threskian, is used several times in the New Testament related to Christianity. For example, see Acts 26, verse 5, James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, and finally Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. So yeah, the, the Greek word uh, Threskian therefore does not necessarily suggest the pagan religion and it can be best translated as religious observance or even simply just as religion. Some translators have translated uh, just religion and this explains to you why most modern historians and translators of Greek uh, would never go with this outdated interpretation or translation of it uh, 
Treskian referring to a specifically pagan cult of the ancestors. Carrier's just out of date, and because he's a mythicist, you have to wonder. I, I, I tend to think that mythicists do prefer going back in time to scholarship of the 1800s and early 20th century, when it was much, when there was a much more biased uh, against the Christian religion, and you know, it happened before the third wave of Jesus uh, historical studies, where we realized and rediscovered the Jewishness of Jesus and stuff like that. So, I personally think that there's a bias, but nonetheless, the Greek word you have absolute proof. This same Greek word is uh, absolute historically proven fact. You can see it with your own eyeballs if you can read Greek. Um, it refers to the Jewish religion and therefore why most scholars today say that, yeah, this this uh, just means religious observance or religion. It, it doesn't talk about the pagan cult of the ancestors. Okay, so next up, lines three and four assume the existence of family tombs where only dead bodies were present, not the ashes of cremated humans in urns. Hmm, interesting. Because pagans, they didn't, they cremated humans and put them in urns. They didn't put them in family tombs. That's what the Jews did. Only the Jews had sepulchers. Interesting. Um, that's another proof that this thing is applied to Jews. This edict is meant for Jews, not for pagans, because they only cremated or they just buried them in the ground or something like that. Uh, they didn't use tombs or sepulchers. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail when we get to the dating. Essentially, basically, I just wanted to say um, there's nothing in this edict which assumes or states that the ashes of the cremated dead had been moved, lost, or scattered in any way, or that the funeral urns had been, had been moved, destroyed, or stolen. And if this truly was aimed at pagans, like Richard Carrier and the mythicists would have you believe, hmm, why is that neglected? Interesting question, right? So, so that's one another thing to, to know about. Uh, further, the edict doesn't mention corpses or funeral urns being dug up out of the ground. So inhumation or burial in the ground, again, in cemeteries was a pagan practice, but this isn't mentioned in the edict at all. It's, it's very telling that in the early imperial period of the Roman Empire, pagan gentile burials um, for both corpses or cremated urns were almost always in individual graves and cemeteries not in family tombs, like what this edict refers to, like what the Jews did. Um, really, only a few of the very, very wealthy were buried in mausoleum-style tombs, and even these uh, were only uh, for very important, rich individuals, almost never for family burials. Who did the family burials? The Jews. Hmm, interesting. This edict seems like it's about Jews, not pagans. Um, and uh, some scholars say, look, uh, there are no known examples, quote-unquote, there are no known examples of family rolling stone tombs like those in Second Temple period Israel to be found among the other ethnic groups in the ancient Roman Empire. Jewish family, quote-unquote, cock, K-O-K, tombs commonly had rolling stones or sealing stones in front of their entrances, as was the case for the tomb of Christ. The fact that there were no Gentile burials in rolling stone, rolling stone tombs in the ancient Roman world strongly suggests that the Nazareth inscription 
was written for Jews and or Jewish Christians and not for pagan Gentiles. Incidentally, catacombs were nothing more than underground cemeteries, and they too were not divided into true family tombs. Ooh, that is devastating for Carrier, hearing that world's expert um, talk about uh, the fact that it's just ridiculous to pretend that this is talking about pagans when actually the content is speaking specifically of Jewish burial practices and Jewish burial practices alone in the Roman Empire. All right, cool. So so let's... The next uh, translation issue, the, the Greek phrase doloi, poneroi, in line six, which is translated, quote-unquote, with wicked intent or malicious intent, is almost... Uh, certainly the equivalent of the Latin uh, cuius dolo malo, uh, which is found in the in later Roman laws and that sort of thing. So the, the Latin is normally translated as, you know, quote-unquote, by someone's evil design. So you're taking the bodies, desecrating them for out of a malicious intent. So, so basically the, the entire Greek phrase here, what is it actually trying to say in line six? So it reads as, Ice heteros topas doloi poneroi meta coda. I'm horrible at Greek, as you can tell. Um, but but yeah, the the main important point to get here is the the placement of this doloi poneroi um, between ice and heteros topas are two the other places, and quote unquote has moved. This clearly indicates that it was the moving of the dead bodies to other places that was being done with malicious intent or with wicked intent. It's not the movement of the tombs themselves. Ridiculous, Carrier. Ridiculous. So, um, you know, as you said, Carrier mistranslated this and pretended that they were moving. Um, let me just go scroll up back to his translation. He is saying, look, it's the movement of the two entire tombs and graves was what he translated it as. But this phrase in the Greek, uh, no, it it actually specifically says the moving of the bodies. Um, there's no doubt with this. Moving of the bodies to other places with wicked intent, that's what's being scorned here. Because, in other words, you know, bodies were being moved to perpetrate some sort of, of, of a fraud. You know, they had a malicious intent. Um, and the proper translation of doloi Poneroi, and I'll just spell it because I'm horrible, D-O-L-O-I-P-O-N-E-R-O-I. And that's what we call with wicked intent. That's the translation. This gives strong support to the conclusion that the Nazareth inscription was written in response to the Christians, uh, the resurrection of Jesus and his empty tomb, thereby proving his empty tomb. It's a perfect match. But notice that Carrier has to Oh shoot, that's too Christian. Um, so let me mistranslate it and pretend no, the crime is they're not. It's not about the bodies. It's they're moving the tombs. That's the problem. They're moving the tombs. Um, that that's what it's speaking about. Uh, sorry, I, that's just impossible to be true given the Greek grammar of what's uh, said. Because given the placement of this doloi poner with wicked intent, where it's placed in between two other places and had mo has moved proves that it's talking about the bodies. Um, so that takes care of that. 
Um, okay, another translation thing. In line 8 in the Greek text, there is an epsilon, which is the letter E, uh, meaning or. And it's found between the words sepulcher ceiling or stones, E stones, right? So it's saying, you know, sepulcher ceilings or stones. And uh, the, the Greek word there is katoexus um, e lithos. And this is almost certainly a pagan scribal error um, that took place. It was an accident and wasn't part of the original. Um, so this is what I mean. Again, we're, we've got a rump version with scribal errors in it. Um, but notice that Richard Carrier takes advantage of this scribe, obvious scribal error and tries to say, well, they're going, they're switching stones. It's not about the rolling ceiling stones, which only the Jews had. Um, it's about taking stones from inside the tombs and using them for other purposes. But yeah, that, that's obviously not what the Greeks actually saying and it's obvious that this epsilon is out of place there it's not saying sepulcher ceiling or stones generally no it's talking about sepulcher ceiling stones like what they had in jerusalem over jesus tomb that was rolled out of the way and that sort of thing and as i said all historians agree with this today it's only the radical mythicists that have an agenda that really deny this but yeah for proof of this the exact same Greek words, katoxe, uh, lithoi, without the Greek epsilon uh, between them, appears in several other Greek documents it's, and translates always as sepulcher sealing stones. And it's for this reason that um, nobody places an or between the two words in their translation. So, so yeah, se sepulcher sealing stones uh, are what they're talking about, and those were used for Jewish family cock or family tombs. You know, and they were obviously not used in the Greco-Roman style in terms of inhumation, bury, burying people underground. Why would you use a rolling stone? You wouldn't need a ceiling stone. You, there's nothing to seal. Or if they're cremated and that sort of thing. Now, even for Jews, the period of time that sepulcher sealing or rolling of stones that was used for family tombs in Israel was relatively short, basically lasting less than 200 years. Uh, and that's going to be relevant when we come to the dating of this thing. Um, but yeah, right now we're just going over the translation and what it says. Um, so this is obviously a reference to, uh, you know, these second temple Jewish family tombs of the wealthy with ceiling stones that are today called kok or kok tombs by archaeologists. And there is no archaeological or documentary evidence which indicates that such K-O-K, cock tombs, with their sepulcher ceiling stones were ever used by pagans in the Roman Empire. And this fact strongly suggests that the Nazareth inscription, again, was written against Jews who spread the story about King Jesus, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's the interpretation. We won't get into that. But it's strongly about Jews. That's the audience. Because only they had these ceiling stones for their tombs and sepulchers. Okay, uh, so then the next thing in terms of translation, so the Greek phrase criterion ego kelogenestai, which is translated, I order that a tribunal be created, and this is found in lines 8 and 9, indicates that a trial for the crime of violation of sepulchre was to be treated as a sacrilege crime. It had to be handled by local religious tribunal, and the punishment, however it was to be meted out by temporal Roman officials, um, it, it should be noted that uh, they should be handed over 
um, and then put to the death penalty, the absolute death penalty. Okay, so a another outdated thing that Richard Carrier uses um, to try and reinforce this pagan, not Jewish, audience is he, he kind of goes along with Frank Brown, again, that outdated scholar from 1952, in his article, um, Violation of Sepulchre in Palestine, who argues that the presence of the word gods, plural, in line 9, indicates that the Nazareth inscription was written for pagans, polytheists, probably in Deco Decopolis, or the Ten Cities. Um, and Brown writes of this uh, appearance of the word gods in the Nazareth inscription, he says the following, quote-unquote, such an insult to Jewish feeling, an insult calculated to precipitate a general insurrection, was exactly what Roman policy did the, its utmost to avoid. In other words, they're saying, well, he uses the word gods, plural. Uh, that can't be a Jewish audience, therefore it must be for a pagan audience, because the Jews would be so outraged if he used the word gods instead of one true god in his uh, edict there. Uh, unfortunately, all modern historians kind of laugh at this. This is pure uh, rubbish on the part of Brown. Because, number one, Flavius Josephus himself clearly states in his that Caligula Caesar nearly drove the Jews to an armed revolt in 41 AD because of his hubristic edict that a statue, his statue, be set up for worship as a god in the Jewish temple. Hmm, so much for this supposed Roman policy of absolute respect of the Roman emperors doing their quote-unquote utmost to avoid causing a general insurrection among the Jews. Uh, they didn't give a rat's patoot. They just wanted to control you and would do anything and everything that suited them in that cause. Um, but secondly, there's, there actually still exists imperial rescripts written to the Jews by the Emperor Claudius, hint, 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 for dating, which calls Caesar Augustus the God. Um, wouldn't that outrage the Jews? Well, according to Frank Brown, the emperors would never do that. Uh, complete rubbish. Historically proven fact, you're wrong and carriers, again, behind the times and outdated on this front. So, so yeah, the reference to gods in line 9, gods plural, should be viewed in conjunction with the establishment of the religious tribunal mentioned in lines 8 and 9. Uh, what the heck does that mean? Well, in other words, the, the imperial rescript is simply saying that, look, just as religious tribunals were to try criminal cases of religious sacrilege involving the gods, well, so also such religious tribunals should try cases dealing with the removal of corpses from the tombs. Um, you know, they're dealing with the crime of the violation of the sepulchre, uh, and that was to be handled as a religious crime. That's all that line 9 is saying here. It's not, no way is it saying, oh, this is aimed at pagans. That's reading something into the text that just isn't there. Um, and this, the interpretation that we're giving here for line 9, that modern historians take of this use of the word gods, um, it's actually supported by later writings. The Theodosian Code, for example, um, 9.17.2, where it, it actually states that investigations into the crime of uh, violations of the sepulchre in the city of Rome were to be conducted by the judges and the pontiffs the religious pontiff leaders. 
Um, so, you know, the crime of the violation of the sepulchre was to be considered a religious crime in Roman law. So, yeah, this interpretation is fully plausible and makes sense. Um, there's no reason to think that uh, just because the word gods is, is used here that that proves, oh, well, the audience must have been pagan. Uh, no, the, the emperor is a pagan. He's just speaking off the cuff and doesn't care about being sensitive to the Jews or something. He's just saying, look, uh, somebody robs, somebody violates a tomb and steals a body. That's a religious crime. They should be put to death. Charge them in the same tribunals for the tribunals that handle religious crimes against the god, the various gods. You know, the god of the Jews, the god of the Greeks, whatever, wherever it is. He's 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 not making a point. Um, so so yeah, that's the interpretation on that front utterly fails. Okay, what about in line twelve? Another possible thing here, translation, and we're getting towards the end. I promise. We just got a few more to go, but. Um, I need to get extremely technical because the translation is a fundamental issue between mythicists and pro-historicists. Um, and so we need to get the translation correct um, in order to move forward and, and see what kind of value this has for proving a minimal historical Jesus. So bear with me. We're almost done this technical Greek uh, translation work. But uh, like I said, it's important. So let's get through it. So in line 12, the Greek word metakinesi, kinesi, uh, should be translated as, quote-unquote, to move, as in to move dead bodies. Um, but this is strangely not reflected in the translations of uh, Zaluta from 1932, who translated, translated it as, quote-unquote, disturb them. Um, and also Brown, quote-unquote, translates it as forcibly disturb them. So yeah, the, you know, this sentence in lines 11 to 12... What is it? It's it's simply restating for the second time that dead bodies were not to be removed from the tombs. It's referring back to the original clause where we proved that it was talking about the bodies being removed from the tombs, not about moving the tombs themselves. Ridiculous. So yeah, the, the fact that this warning against removing of corpses from tombs is repeated a second time here uh, from originally in lines 5 and 6, that strongly indicates that this was the main reason why this edict was issued. It's putting the emphasis on moving dead bodies, not about disturbing the tombs themselves. Additionally, what's also interesting here is it's not about the typical uh, grave robbing. You know, it's not about moving the valuables or belongings of these corpse, corpses from the tombs itself. It's about the bodies being moved, the corpses themselves, not the valuables in the tomb. Uh, you know, so you ask, well, why would any sane person want to move a body but not rob it uh, as well? Um, you know, why isn't there any mention of robbing these corpses, as is normal in a lot of Roman uh, thing, um, grave robbing laws, as, as we'll see? Uh, this is at least strange. And again, it's suggestive of what happened with Jesus. There was no claim that they robbed him or, had it, or he had any goods. They just stole the body and perpetrated for, with false malicious intent, pretended that he rose from the dead. That interpretation kind of fits here. Okay, so the last interpretational note, uh, translational note here to go over. Um, lines 13 and 14 of the Nazareth inscription impose the death penalty on anyone found guilty of removing bodies from tombs with wicked intent. Now, as several modern scholars have noted, there are no other examples in all of Roman law 
for the use of capital punishment for the crime of breaking into a tomb and removing a dead body. There's absolutely no other examples of this. Now, there, there is a reference to the stealing of bodies from tombs in an edict from the emperor on Honorius in 386 AD, 400 years later, uh, in late antiquity. But the context of this edict makes it very clear that the problem being addressed was the theft of the bodies of Christian saints to be sold as relics, and that has no application to pagans back in the first century AD. Um, so, so that's an interesting aspect, and this is something that Richard Carrier, the mythicist, denies, and, and uh, he says, "No, this must have there must have reflected a much older ancient thing of." punishing people the death penalty for robbing tombs of the wicked and he gives uh, some examples so, so let me mention some of those so it's very telling because Carrier he applies to various things so for example he he notes in 160 AD there is Gaius wrote a textbook on Roman law called the Institutes um, so in context he's speaking of traditional laws and he says that as soon as the body is buried in a tomb by its owner the tomb and body become religious, religiousists, consecrate, which means consecrated to the gods of the underworld. Um, and violation of any such act is sacrilege. Uh, he also quotes Marcion's Institutes from 310 AD and reports that, quote-unquote, it is laid down further in the mandates on sacrilege that provincial governors are to track down those who commit sacrilege, brigands, and kidnappers, and punish each according to the degree of his offense. And it is so provided in the constitutions that those who commit sacrilege are to be punished with a fitting penalty, extraordinum. Kind of hints uh, in the digest of Justinian that we mentioned there uh, before, maybe death or something like that. And, and or the, the, at least the governors had carte blanche when it came to decide what is the guilt and punishment that is... Uh, up to be given out for these and sacrilege is a very extremely grave crime so what's telling here um, in the first place is that look it's not mandating the death penalty we the pro-historic society is confirmed by the mythicist himself in the process at principle of enemy attestation he's trying to prove that uh, through association, well, look, it, it was seen as sacrilege. It was seen as a religious crime. Yes, okay, great. We saw that with the this edict itself. And for some crimes like kidnapping and stuff, they were so serious and uh, that it warranted the death penalty. Yes. Uh, well, so then I guess these are uh, connected. So you could get the death penalty for this too. Yeah, but it doesn't say that. You're reading into the text there. And also, these sources are very late and therefore irrelevant. They don't apply to the early imperial period uh, during the time of uh, the, this inscription was given. Um, so even if it did say what you wanted, they, they still wouldn't necessarily prove that there is a law at this time. It, it still remains the fact that it's totally, these penalties of the death penalty was totally atypical at the time this was made in the first century AD. Um, even uh, Ulpian's Duties of the Proconsul, which is written around 220 AD, Carrier cites this and says, quote-unquote, Many have been condemned to the wild beasts for sacrilege, some even burned alive and others hanged on the gallows. Even the lightest penalty for such crimes is deportation to an island. But what's funny is he goes on to say, say in the Praetor's 
edict of the same period, he quotes another thing saying, well, the action for violation of a tomb or a body, dead body, entails infamia, not the death penalty, infamia, which is basically disgrace in an honor-shame society, which was really bad. It's the loss of important rights, and you have a severely poor reputation. You become infamous. Um, so once again, Carrier is kind of, in trying to prove his case that this was no big deal, the death penalty was out there for robbing great, for robbing bodies all everywhere, I think he actually proves our case that this was totally unique at the time. And this is even backed up by the skeptic, Kyle Harper, the scientist who we're going to be finding out a little bit more about in a bit. He did a, a scientific study of the uh, inscription here in 2020 and, and proved uh, some things that were controversial for the pro-historicist or people, Jesus scholars and biblical scholars and stuff like that, Christians basically. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk, even he admits this Nazareth inscription is probably the first instance of the death penalty penalty being issued for this specific crime. Not necessarily just robbing people, robbing valuables within graves and stuff like that. This is the first instance where the capital punishment is issued for uh, this crime. So he, even this, the skeptic, Kyle Harper, a scientist who has done scientific work trying to disprove the Christian case here, disagrees with Carrier and says, no, it's not obvious that um, for what he knows from consulting actual historians, that's not true. This is probably the first instance. And let me go into what the actual historians have to say. So look, generally under Roman law, tomb breaking or robbing was treated as a matter for a civil suit by the family of the person buried in that the tomb that's violated. So this goes back to Justinian's digest. I kind of hinted at that from Carrier and this uh, Theodosian Code. Um, but these were civil fines, not the death penalty um, that were imposed on tomb violators or, or as well what we read from Carrier in Fama later on, that infamous reputation. But what's important here with this Theodosian Code is that it, it's saying that what, what's punishable here is the destruction of destruction of limestone mausoleums, not the moving of bodies or the robbing of tombs. Um, so the looted limestone from mausoleums was being burned into lime for cement, and that's what this Theodosian Code is actually saying. Carrier is taking it out of context. Now, Justinian's Digest, it's true, that does impose the death penalty on anyone who, quote-unquote, robs dead bodies, cadavera spoilant, by armed force. So if you rob dead bodies by armed force, manu armata, then with the exception of the Nazareth inscription, there is no reference outside of this or the Nazareth inscription that allows in Roman law the death penalty being imposed for breaking into a tomb and removing a dead body. So, so yeah, the, the Nazareth inscription has absolutely nothing to say about the robbery of tombs or taking out valuables from the tomb. And it also has nothing to do with robbing the tombs of valuables through armed force, which is what this Justinian's Digest is really talking about. So, yes, ancient peoples did rob tombs. Of course, there were laws against robbing tombs of valuables. Um, but the stealing of dead bodies from the tombs was certainly not a problem that normally was dealt with under Roman law. 
Uh, Roman pagans generally believed that the ghosts of the unburied dead could and would haunt the living. So there are many pagan Greco-Roman stories from ancient world about living beings, living uh, beings being haunted by ghosts, um, whose bodies or ashes were not properly buried, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, the provision in the Nazareth inscription imposing the death penalty for the stealing of dead bodies from tombs does not at all fit a pagan Gentile context. You know, they would not have wanted to have removed a dead body. They would just want to remove its rings, its valuables, and, and get in and get out as quickly as possible. So that doesn't fit a regular pagan context, and it is out of the ordinary. Okay, so with that said, uh, let's before we get into certain inter evaluating certain interpretations of the data, now we have a sense we went into great detail in terms of the translating of the actual Greek itself. The best translation is the one that speaks about stealing bodies, and it seems to have its as its audience a Jewish audience rather than a pagan audience, and talks about uh, removing sepulchre stones and uh, taking out the body, not robbing graves, but taking the body out for a mischievous intent. Seems like Jesus to me. Um, but uh, let's, before we get into interpreting it, let's, what can we say about the dating of this thing then? We know what it, what it is and what it says, um, and how that relates to Richard Carrier's notions, but when, when was it written? Do we know when it, when it actually came about? And here, scholars have a wide variety of opinions. Um, or sorry, so most scholars have an idea of when it dates, but just to give you when it originally came out, the original range was about from 50 BC to 50 AD. So that's what Zulaleta, uh, Dr. Zulaleta said in 1932, and he sort of favored somewhere in the middle, so around zero, 1 BC, 1 AD, sometime in that round, around the turn of the era, so when he thought... Uh, another scholar from the early days, Kumant, Dr. Kumant, he agrees, believing the edict to be of Augustus. Some have said maybe it's even of Julius Caesar. So so there is this bottom minimal thing. It, it obviously has to be from a Caesar. So Julius Caesar was the first. Now, Julius Caesar would be unlikely candidate. He wasn't an emperor. He was had power up until 44 BC and that sort of thing. Um, but he was never an emperor or had imperial edicts that he would have given, even as a dictator of Rome, really, uh, that, you know, reflected the official language. Remember, those, those skeptics, Karl Harper, even proved that there's official language of the emperors in the early imperial period that's used in this Nazareth inscription. So it's not Julius Caesar. Minimally, it's got to be Augustus Caesar. But when? Well, Augustus... Um, everyone admits this was in the Eastern Mediterranean. So there's various interpretations. Some say it was in Asia Minor, Turkey. Others say it was meant for the Jews and that sort of thing. But nobody denies it's obviously meant for people in the East um, as opposed to Western uh, Romans like Gauls or Romans and stuff like that. And that's why it was translated into Koine Greek, the common Greek. Uh, most people in the East spoke Greek, they didn't speak Latin, whereas the West, it was more Latinized and, and had their barbarian languages and that sort of thing at, during this time of Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar. So, yeah, given that it's translated into Greek from the original Latin, uh, and 
even the rump version or the abridged version is translated in very bad Greek. It's obviously showing there's some common Greek going on in natural Greek. So that's how we know it's uh, dedicated for peoples of the East. And as we argued above, specifically that was Jews. Um, but just for right now, people of the East, the Greek speakers, it was meant for. So on that basis, well, Mark Anthony was in control of the East. He was in charge of the administration. So Augustus Caesar would not have made any imperial edicts um, from 44 BC up until 31 BC with the Battle of Actium. Once he destroyed Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in 31 BC, then he became the first emperor of Rome in 30 BC onwards. And so therefore we know that this Nazareth inscription from Augustus Caesar has to post-date 30 BC or uh, later. Couldn't be before that date. So that gives us our minimum, hard minimum here. Okay, so what about on the other end? What Do we know what the maximum date range is? As I said, some scholars, most scholars in the 1930s would have said 50 BC to, now we push that up to 30 BC, up to 50 AD. However, uh, some scholar, skeptical scholars have dated it as late as 140s AD to 150 AD, the decade after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion in 132 to 135 AD. Um, so Frank E. Brown from the 1950s, he dates it to the mid-2nd century AD, largely based on an assumption that the Nazareth inscription was an imperial edict proper. Um, and that therefore it couldn't have been dated earlier because it uh, couldn't have been written during the rule of any Jewish king over Galilee. It would have had to have been when the emperor took over after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, 132-135. Then the Palestine, Roman province of Judea became Palestine and they wiped out the Jews once and for all. So he says this, Brown says, quote unquote, in the realms of such kings created and upheld an independence by the emperor and the senate, for the purpose of securing the frontiers, no constitution of the emperor was valid. Unfortunately, Brown's assumption here is clearly false historically. Modern historians would never say such a thing because his consequent arguments for dating the Nazareth inscription are faulty and unreliable. Um, number one, the emperor Claudius in the above rescript we gave clearly gives orders directly to kings and dynastic governors. Not a problem, they did do that even if there is kings and dynastic governors. And this rescript letter of Claudius was available to Brown in Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. So he should have read it. He should have known better. Brown is just totally being an irresponsible scholar here, along with Richard Carrier and modern day mythicists who make fallacious arguments on this basis. Um, so it's absolute rubbish to, to say that, oh, it had to be uh, couldn't be while there is a king, Jewish king on the throne that he made this decree. No, he could. And secondly, it's it's not a legal edict, proper edict. Remember, it's a diatagma. It, it is a rescript uh, and a very bad one, you know, spelling mistakes, poorly written and stuff like that of the original Latin edict itself. Uh, so there's simply not a problem here. There's no reason why it has to date to the mid-2nd century. And this is why all historians say that's ridiculous. It dates to the 1st century, probably most likely during the reign of Claudius, as we've been hinting at. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we've got uh, it. We've got that, that general thing. But there's a hard thing of 70 AD. 
um, whereby it can't date any uh, later than that uh, as a fact. So if you remember, I mentioned that there is a very short period of time. This thing mentions sepulcher sealing rolling stones um, or sealing stones that only the Jews used. No pagans used that in this early imperial period. And even for the Jews, it was relatively short for family tombs. This lasted only for 200 years. So it ended a hard stop, this practice, in Jerusalem after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know, after the fall of Jerusalem, Jews in the Roman Empire buried their dead, much like their Gentile pagan neighbors. In the diaspora, they adopted their practices. Uh, so they put them in individual graves and cemeteries. You see that in Jerusalem by the Eastern Gate or whatever, uh, where the Messiah is going to come, Jesus is going to come in the second coming. You got all those individual tombs, just like how the pagans, they, they're not buried in rock-cut tombs anymore. Um, so this fact clearly says the Nazareth inscription had to be issued before 70 AD. Uh, absolute proof, uh, historically, um, because these cock tombs from the Second Temple period just stopped being used at that time. Um, so there we've got a period of a hundred years that's set in stone. Sometime between 30 BC and 70 AD, the Nazareth inscription must have been written. But can we narrow the date down even more? Absolutely. You bet, you bet we can. But before I do that, I want to get into uh, just provide, well, within this date, 30 BC to 70 AD, what are some of the interpretations that mythicists and uh, other historians have tried to give as to what this is talking about? Uh, one interpretation by the mythicist Richard Carrier, um, he tries to, to give this little thing where he, he locates it. Uh, the inscription is not clearly, origin is not clearly known, but he says maybe it was issued uh, in Samaria or Decapolis. And he says, well, I think it was um, uh, the cause for it was a historical event in Samaria in 8 AD. So the August, during the time of Augustus Caesar, he issued this decree because some Samaritans in 8 AD, they entered the temple after midnight and tossed around corpses they had uh, presumably illegally exhumed from elsewhere. And this possibly provoked the recall of the governor Caponius, the Roman governor at that time. Um, however, uh, Zaluta disagrees and says, no, I think it was the edict was issued in Decapolis, and it seems totally unconnected with the temple violation. So uh, she kind of goes against this um, interpretation by Richard Carrier, where he provides this 8 AD date. Now, Interesting, the, the most interesting date, uh, most interesting interpretation within our dates, 30, firm dates of 30 BC to 70 AD, at least at this time, is the interpretation by a bunch of scientists and historians who've done a 2020 scientific study. So I hinted at this, and they actually scientifically and chemically evaluated the uh, Nazareth inscription itself and have scientifically proven where is where does this thing originate from not nazareth not israel or judea it originates on the greek island of kos that's where the marble was quarried to make this thing so they go oh great well you know what 
Um, in 20 BC, so it's, that's within 30 BCs, during the reign of Augustus Caesar, um, there was a tyrant who owned the island of Ka who ruled the island of Kos, named Nicias, and he was a, a leader of great local importance and broad connections. He was no, well known in Rome, and like many rulers, um, Nicias was a partisan of Mark Antony and Cleopatra from the east. Uh, but he was he was a bad, scandalous uh, sob. Uh, the peeps didn't like him at all. So, anyways, he died, and in about 20 BC, they took out his corpse. His dra it was dragged out into the sunlight, and the, the people in the city pried open the bars of his tomb, dragged out the wretch for the punishment of second death, um, because they hated this piece of filth so much. So. These scientists, like uh, Kyle Harper, for example, who've proven that the marble for this scientifically proven fact, undeniable, comes from the island of Kos. That's where the marble was quarried from. Uh, it doesn't come from the Holy Land or anything like that. On that basis, they say, well, maybe this edict, Augustus Caesar, after the Battle of Actium in 20 BC, he issued this to say you shouldn't have you shouldn't have uh, desecrated this guy's body. That's what the edict's talking about. It's it's about the impetus for it was Nicias in 20 BC. But in the first place, it's... And the reason they say, they say well, this hypo historical hypothesis makes the most sense because it fits Augustus Caesar, so it fits everything. And plus, it's simpler. Occam's razor, you know, the stone itself was quarried from the island of Kos, well, here we've got the the tyrant of Kos itself, his body being desecrated by the local people because he was a despicable tyrant. Everything fits. Uh, yeah, that's what the edict must be about. It must. It, it was quarried and then engraved there for the people of Kos, on Kos, for the people of Kos, the Greek island of Kos. And their main reason, why should we believe that? Well, it's, it's the simplest hypothesis, Occam's razor. That's where the marble was from, and that's where that's who it was for. And it lines up within our firm dates of 30 BC to 70 AD, in between that date. Now, the problem is even the scientists themselves, consulting historians, know that this is complete rubbish reasoning. It's not simple, it's not simpler in any way to say this. It doesn't pass Occam's razor. That's an abuse of the criterion of simplicity. To say, oh, well, it was quarried there and therefore it was meant for there because everybody knows it was widespread marble was coast the island of coast was widespread in uh, exporter of marble for the ancient world including judea we've it's a historically proven fact that these scientists and i'll include their scientific peer-reviewed paper for you guys to read on my blog even they admit herod the great there are actually uh, 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 inscriptions of Herod the Great and Herod Antipas, the Herod during the time of Jesus, um, that prove they were connected to the island of Kos. They had great connections with them, and they imported marble from them all the time for their purposes. This is totally uncontroversial. So there's nothing, absolutely zippo, bupkis, about this scientific discovery from 2020 by Harper and his team that proves, well, just because the marble was quarried from coast, that proves it couldn't have been in Nazareth or intended for Nazareth, the message and stuff like that, or Jerusalem or Judea. No, uh, it makes perfect sense. It's equally likely because of the connections the Jews had, the kingdom of Judea had with um, 
the island of Kos, starting with Herod the Great. Um, I mean, there are there are inscriptions with their names on the island, Greek island of Kos themselves, and Herod Antipas. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we can take, well, the marble was quarried from Kos, therefore it has nothing to do with Judea. That's rubbish reasoning. Um, and the scientists themselves admit this, that you can't go that far. Now they they there was a, they did attempt want to try and date this thing which would help us when did it actually date from but unfortunately the scientific tests absolutely failed and they weren't able to tell when this dates from so so again it it's left up to other means historical means for dating this between 30 BC and 70 AD to get a more finer date range so the only thing we know absolutely true as of 2020 that comes from this new scientific study from the geochemical analysis or whatever of the of the material is that the marble itself was quarried from the Greek island of Kos. That's all we that proves nothing historically in terms of when it was made or who um, the inscription was meant for, the imperial edict or whatever the abridged version of it was meant for um it could be nazareth it could be jews and or jewish christians for sure and especially given what we proved above we saw it definitely was aimed at jews and or jewish christians uh very very probable it wasn't for pagans so that kind of rules out this nikias interpretation as well as the 8 ad one that's ridiculous by carrier yeah i, I wanted to to mention that um, but then there's also the main interpretation that most historians and scholars have have thought and most christian apologists have used is no claudius caesar made this in 41 a.d uh, or thereabouts in response to the jewish revolts that was going on because jesus's body they knew about the empty tomb there was this tradition you know dr william lane craig has proven there's this early tradition in matthew where this polemic going back and forth you know you stole the body no we couldn't have there was a stone well you moved it what you know there's this back and forth and that's a historically proven fact very early on so claudius would have been aware of this he, that's why he expelled the jews because the jews were becoming very rebellious at this time uh the emperor caligula before claudius started an absolute revolt against uh the jews by trying to set up his statue in the temple uh, and this got the Jews around the Roman world in a tizzy. Um, they were ready to fight and kill and wipe the Romans out from the face of the earth. Um, so Claudius coming in as the next emperor after Caligula created this mess, he's having to deal with all this, right? So um, essentially Caligula made Herod Agrippa. The Herod Agrippa was a, a spastuate of a man. Uh, he was a bugger. And um, he took out, took over after Herod Antipas and uh, he was best buddies with Caligula so that says a lot about the guy right but he basically got the entire kingdom of Herod the Great so he included Judea not just Galilee but uh, Jerusalem as well and everything and then he started going down to Jerusalem in 41 BC AD and torturing innocent Christians this is the SOB that killed James the brother the son of Zebedee um, it's this little guy uh, this uh, Herod Agrippa the first that did this um, and he was uh, whoa the Jews were really didn't like this guy so he only reigned for three years he died in 44 BC the Bible records this in Acts 12 I believe it is um, and you know he died very painfully and Jews and Christians alike 
laughed at him because of this. And they said, you got what you deserved. God gave it to you. Uh, you got what you dished out kind of thing. So this guy, this is the Sitzim Lieben that most scholars today, or that this hypothesis says, provided the impetus for riling up the Jews um, and caused problems. And they were easily instigated at this time because of the Christians and Herod Agrippa uh, provoking them. At the same time, Caligula is trying to bring in this statue into their temple. Um, so it, it's just a mess. It's a hot mess type deal. Um, and that's why Calig uh, the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. He's like, this is just too much. Um, and don't forget Suetonius. Remember, we he said in isolation, in part 1b, we proved he can't prove a minimal historical Jesus, but he is uh, beneficial as a supporting document or evidence. As a Roman secular Roman historian with access to records, he can support Cornelius Tacitus. Well, guess what? Suetonius also supports the Nazareth inscription, archaeological evidence here, because from Suetonius, this provides further context for this hypothesis where Claudius knew about Christ, as seen from his passage in Suetonius that we talked about in my Jesus Mythicism Refuted Parts 1b show, um, because of the disturbances that the Jews were making at the instigation of Crestus, and that everybody knows that means Christ or Christus. So because of that, he expelled ex Priscilla and Aquila were Jewish Christians that were expelled. This is recorded in Acts 18.2. This is the impetus for that. So the Pretending that the Nazareth inscription was created by Claudius in response to the Christians instigating up the Jews along with all the trouble of Herod Agrippa persecuting Christians and knowing about the body. Claudius knew about this, found a, you know, he made this edict, stop, you know, it's totally against the law, I will kill you if you dare steal a body from the thing for a malicious intent. What was that? Well, it was claiming the resurrection. The Christians stole the body. That's what the Jews said about Christians, right? And pretended that he rose from the dead. Uh, so that was this. It illuminates not only Suetonius's quote, everything lines up. It also illuminates Dr. William Lane Craig's proof for the empty tomb. This historically early back and forth between Christians and that sort of thing. He rose from the dead. No, he didn't. Uh, oh, he didn't? Show me the body. Well, the body's not there. You stole the body, you know, back and forth between Jews and Christians. Everything makes sense and fits in terms of explanatory scope, power, uh, illumination as well, illuminating the quote by Suetonius, why Claudius expelled the Jews and, you know, the death of Herod, uh, the uh, Herod Agrippa persecuting the Christians, stirring up trouble. So, yeah, everything seems to fit. That That's the interpretation that Christian apologists want to give. They'll say, well, if it was written by Claudius, it was sometime 41 AD to 54 AD. Most scholars say it was 41 AD because of this life situation, this sits in Lieben of everything going around at this time, the statue of Caligula, the, you know, everything going on with Herod Agrippa persecuting the innocent Christians and killing James, the brother of John the Apostle, one of the pillars of the early church, killed by this despot, Herod Agrippa I. Um, in 42, 40, 42 AD or thereabouts. So that's why it makes most sense um, situationally. So that's that interpretation. So great. So do we have reasons for favoring one hypothesis over the other? 
as I said, in terms of the Richard Carrier 8 AD, that's complete rubbish. Nobody believes that. There's no reason to believe that that's the proper interpretation. Um, at best, it's a plausible historical hypothesis with nothing, no evidence supporting it. The second best is this Nicias thing in 20 BC, um, because it's got the scientific evidence from the fact that the stone itself was quarried from Kos. And also they try to argue Occam's razor, simplicity. It was quarried in Kos for the people of Kos. Makes sense. Um, but we say that doesn't really work given we know how the that the Jews imported from the island of Kos so much so that they had their own inscriptions. Herod the Great and Herod Antipas had their own inscriptions on the island of Kos itself. Um, so it's not really, there's no really evidence for this Nicias interpretation. On the other hand, there is so much going for the evidence for the Claudius Caesar during 41 AD in response to the empty tomb claims of Christians and riling up the Jews and that sort of thing. Um, so we had that criterion of illumination and scope. With Suetonius's quote, uh, it accounts for the facts and the situation at that time. It accounts for the fact that the Nazareth inscription is plainly revealed to a sepulcher stone family tomb, just like Jesus, and to the Jews, specifically not to pagans in all probability. It explains Dr. William Lane Craig's apologetics arguments for the historicity and early attestation of the empty tomb via the polemical back and forth between Christians and one-upmanship between Christians and Jews. But we have even more evidence to favor that it was made by specifically by Claudius. And we've kind of hinted at this. In the first place, there's linguistic evidence. So there are certain words that are only used by Claudius and no other Roman emperors that just coincidentally seem to crop up in this Nazareth inscription. And we mentioned some of them, but here are some other examples of that kind of thing. So we had the Diatagma Carios, the Edict of Caesar, and in his other rescripts of Claudius, Mao Diatagma, only he uses this, a very rare word. Uh, we have the Thextros Anthropon, or Religious Observances of Men. Um, you know, the I order that no one, or I order that nothing. This is a specifically Claudi Claudian or Claudius phraseology, or, or is, you know, just as concerning the gods. Very, they fit very well with the vocabulary and style of other rescripts of the Emperor Claudius. Uh, so there's that linguistic link um, between the Emperor Claudius and Nazareth inscription. It also contains, you know, as I said, specific words and grammatical structures. And just to get specific here, um, it's specific with the Emperor Claudius when he's dealing with the Jews. So for example, the 90 words used in the Nazareth inscription there are only 14 Greek words or phrases that are not found in other rescripts of the Emperor Claudius. Um, and nearly all of these words deal with the specifics of the reason for which uh, the rescript was written. So, you know, breaking tombs versus stealing dead bodies, moving them to other places and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that that's incredible. 70-something um, words out of 90 match Claudius. Um, Linguistic experts would say, yes, in all probability, it's it was Claudius that stands behind this on this basis alone. So yeah, the, the link here, uh, it's just obvious. If you're making an inference to the best explanation in terms of evaluating the historical hypotheses, hands down, the fact that Jesus is, was a historical person, minimal historical person that was 
killed and was placed in a tomb and then later on his body was removed from the tomb supposedly stolen by the disciples um, again even if you believe that uh, we don't we're not arguing for the Christian Jesus we're just arguing for a minimal historical Jesus so pretend the disciples did steal it who cares he was a real person on earth that had a body was dead in a tomb and then the tomb was unoccupied leading to the impetus probably leading to the impetus from this edict probably from Claudius Caesar very probably aimed at Nazarenes they would have known the Christians or Christians were in, from Nazareth so they would have posted this probably not in Nazareth itself because that's a small town at the time but in um, Sepphoris or the perhaps the city of Tiberias one of the bigger cities that's where this edict would have been posted up or something and then issued out in the rescript form to the smaller towns of Nazareth or something something like that um, but yeah, we, you know, there's immense plausibility in this. Not only that, there's explanatory scope in explaining the facts. There's massive explanatory power with the uh, strong literary connections, including rare words that are unique uh, to Claudius Caesar and not to other emperors in this imperial edict um, and turn and phraseologies. The historical situation and circumstances, it's got no ad hoc components to it. Um, so it's just as simple as the Nicias hi historical hypothesis, for example. Um, so you can't argue, well, one's better based on simplicity, really. And then fi finally, it also passes the bonus criterion of criterion of illumination as well. It, it illuminates the quote from Suetoni, the Roman historian Suetonius, about Crestus that we investigated and found to be valid, but it, it alone couldn't prove a minimal historical Jesus. Well, now Suetonius comes in handy as support, a supporting document that is illuminated by this Nazareth inscription, making it a better explanation compared to other historical hypotheses. And also, uh, uh, you know, in terms of Acts chapter 12, there, there are certain uh, Hebrew, in the biblical book of Hebrews, there's that, again, that rare word used for the edict uh, in Greek that's only used less than a dozen times in the entirety of all of ancient literature that we have, making it seem like the author of Hebrews probably saw the connection, saw the edict himself, and, and wrote it down. So yeah, there, there's just so much that's illuminated here. As well, the tradition, the Dr. William Lane Craig apologetic, when we look at the Christian evidences or sources for the minimal historical Jesus in later shows, you know, there's that early tradition between the, the fighting, between the back and forth of Jews and Christians about where, what happened to Jesus' body in the tomb and why it was empty and everything like that. Well, that's illuminated if by positing the Claudius hypothesis, G, you know, Claudius edict in response to Jesus' body being stolen, historical hypothesis. So it's, it's quite clear. I, I think that probably, on a balance of probabilities, the best explanation or historical hypothesis for all of the data, all things considered, is the fact that, yeah, the Nazareth inscription is a response by the Emperor Claudius in and around 41 AD or early in his reign in the early 40s. That is a response to the instigations of the Jews that were coming up because they were riled up by the Christians based on their claim of Crestus or uh, as we know it, Christus or Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ, because um, that body was stolen from the tomb. And uh, Claudius, oh, get get out of here, Jews, I'm going to expel you, and I'm making this edict. If you steal a body in Nazareth or 
in Judea or in this in the realm of Galilee, I will put you to death. I, you know, I just I want rid of this headache, these headaches. Uh, that's the best historical hypothesis. That is the best explanation. If you're making an inference, uh, all the data and evidence that we have seems to make that more probable than not. So I assign a 65 to 70 percent in terms of my own subjective probability value that the Nazareth inscription actually uh, probably proves there was a minimal historical Jesus who died, was put in a tomb, and subsequently his body was removed somehow, either through resurrection or because the disciples stole it. We won't speculate on that, uh, but his body was removed, and this caused uh, problems between Christians and Jews, caught thereby providing the impetus for Claudius to initiate this imperial edict, uh, rescript, and, and issue that to them, imposing something never before seen uh, in the Roman world, the capital punishment for stealing a body, not robbing the goods out of a tomb, but for st actually stealing the body itself. Uh, yeah, so, so that's great. That's my take on the Nazareth inscription. As I said, check out my blog. I'm providing detail. There's a lot that I had to leave out because I'm already at an hour and 25 minutes here, but check out the sources. I've given various mythicists, Richard Carrier source. I've given the scientific peer-reviewed science journal on my blog. If you click in the video description, go to my blog, you get that for free. And I've got a great scholarly author by Dr. Billington, who's uh, the pro-historicist, where I got a lot of information from. He was great. Dr. Clyde E. Billington. Uh, he's even referenced uh, as a scholar um, on the Wikipedia page. So, uh, yeah, check out my sources, and, um, yeah, I think you'll find there's there's a lot to this Nazareth inscription. Uh, Caleb Jackson uh, said we got to be wary about this. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think on a balance of probabilities, the, the evidence is definitely pretty persuasive. This proves there was a minimal historical Jesus, um, and... Beyond that, we get some extra details, you know, that are consistent with that, like that he died and was put in a, in a rich family tomb, and uh, like Joseph of Arimathea, Gospels confirmed, and subsequently the body was stolen, which caused friction among the Jewish population, uh, Gospels confirmed, or and Acts of the Apostles confirmed, so yeah, uh, check that out. All right, cool. So, so that does it for the Nazareth inscription. Let's move on to the second archaeo secular archaeological evidence, or, and this will be the last one, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Does this also likewise provide proof for the empty tomb of Christ or the proving he was a historical guy that died and was put into a tomb? Uh, let's see if this one works. Okay, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, according to traditional Christians, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, you know, uh, Russian Orthodox, all of that good stuff, basically traditionally claims to be the both the crucifixion site and as well the uh, burial scene, the tomb where Jesus resurrected from the dead, and it claims to provide the site for that. And obviously mythicists and skeptics, hyper-skeptics, uh, would know that has nothing to do with Jesus at all because Jesus was a because Jesus was a myth, he didn't exist. So there would obviously be no empty tomb or site of the crucifixion on the planet Earth in Jerusalem for us to have, for us to point. And obviously today, uh, thousands, millions of uh, tourists go to visit the modern day, the church that's built on the site around the incredible crucifixion and uh, subsequent burial and resurrection of Jesus. I myself was there in 2013. Um, an amazing time. I was really lucky to 
go into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, as well to the Protestant Garden Tomb, which looks a lot more natural, kind of gives you more of a feel of what it might have looked like in Jesus' day um, with the Protestant one. However, uh, there's a main difference here. With the Protestant Garden Tomb, uh, number one, we know that the tomb there dates way too old. It's way too early to date to the time of Jesus. And no scholars or archaeologists or experts in the field uh, believe that that is or even could possibly be the actual crucifixion place, Golgotha, the hill, uh, and, and or the tomb of Jesus and that sort of thing. On the contrary, though, with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's the exact opposite. Virtually all archaeologists and scholars are coming around and saying, yes, it's likely the case that this really is the archaeological site of Jesus' crucifixion and or at least uh, burial and tomb site, you know, the tomb. And uh, I've got a long list. Doc Protestants are coming around. Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, for example, has been quoted as saying that he believes this. He goes, quote-unquote, Indeed, the tomb beneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is in all probability the tomb in which Jesus himself was laid by Joseph of Arimathea following the crucifixion. That's a Protestant, Dr. William Lane Craig. Not one that would automatically go for uh, Catholic legends or traditional legends. Well, we have none other than Kristen Romy from National Geographic, who's written, quote-unquote, while it is archaeologically impossible to say that the tomb recently uncovered in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the burial site of the individual Jew known as Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, there is indirect evidence to suggest that the identification of the site by representatives of the Roman Emperor Constantine some 300 years later may be a reasonable one. Jeez. Jerusalem archaeologist and world's expert Dr. Dan Bahat claims, quote-unquote, we may not be absolutely certain that the site of the Holy Sepulchre Church is the site of Jesus' burial, but we certainly have no other site that can lay a claim nearly as weighty, and we really have no reason to reject the authenticity of the site. Um, you know, other scholars, a New Testament scholar Craig Evans has said that the authenticity of the site is probable. Archaeologist and world's expert historian uh, Katharina Gellore uh, also holds that the validity of the site cannot be discounted or refuted on archaeological grounds. And famous Jerusalem archaeologist Dr. Sh uh, Shimon Gibson, who's in all the BBC documentaries, I, I love uh, Gibson, he he's a great archaeologist, as well as Amos Kloner, have all stated that they think the Holy Sepulchre is quote-unquote likely authentic. And not only that, we also have the principle of enemy attestation because the world's expert Joan, Dr. Joan E. Taylor, who's associated with Dr. Shimon Gibson, the uh, Joan E. Taylor, she was a skeptic of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, in fact, she she uh, stated her uh, wrote a book uh, on Christians and their holy places, and in that book, she argued she argued that Constantine chose to build his quote unquote martyrarium basilica. Uh, dedicated in 335 AD in honor of the cross on the site of the former Temple of Venus because of convenience, not because it was actually the site of uh, the Christian holy place, the burial tomb of Jesus Christ, and, uh, you know, it was known as Golgotha. Uh, so she tried to argue the opposite, and as we're going to see, I, I include in my blog a full article by her where she, in 2010, uh, 2002, she 
completely reverses itself and says, I was full of rubbish as a hyper-skeptic. We have absolute proof over exaggeration, but we have proof on a balance of probabilities. This very probably is the actual site of Jesus Christ. Um, and she's a secular archaeologist, so she doesn't say Jesus Christ, but of uh, the site of Golgotha, of the burial tomb, is probably located uh, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. She's got um, an interesting theory about the site of the crucifixion, though. She she thinks that, and that'll be in the article, I'm not going to cover that here, but um, she thinks that the, the site of the crucifixion uh, was quite a bit more south uh, from where, from the church and that sort of thing, and where the tomb is in and about now. Um, so they, she, she argues rightly that Golgotha, and we'll, we'll look at this as a much wider area than is sometimes supposed. And she says, look, I think the site of the crucifixion was somewhat far away from where Jesus was ultimately buried. And that seems to back up what the gospels say. And I'll get into her theory because I, I use her as my primary source, um, I think that her theory is very probably correct, given the gospel data and, and all the information and historical documents that we have pertaining to the site of Golgotha and the uh, Hill of Calvary, quote-unquote Hill of Calvary. I'll get into that in a moment. But for the, for the moment, the important thing here is, look, we've got scholarly consensus on our side. Secular, atheists, Jewish, and Christian scholars of Protestant, you know, Protestants like William Lee Craig, Craig Evans, these people are biased against principle of enemy attestation, against Catholic traditions and that sort of thing. They, they would want to say that's rubbish. Uh, no, that's, that's just some Catholic thing Constantine messed up and screwed up. But no, the evidence is overwhelming. And that's why all these scholars are changing their mind. I mean, not only them, just another one off the top of my head, ancient historian Simon Montefiore, he also agrees that the location is quote-unquote likely to be authentic. So, yeah, scholarly consensus uh, destroys the mythicists. This is the actual tomb and possibly site of, cru site of crucifixion, which I'm going to be disagreeing with, along with Joan E. Taylor. At the very least, the site of the tomb proving that Jesus, what the minimal historical Jesus existed, died, um, possibly due to crucifixion, and uh, was buried in the garden tomb, uh, and then was it was found empty, and cr later Christians remembered the site and that sort of thing. Incredible. Okay, so so let's start getting into a little bit more details here. Okay, so let's become familiar with what Golgotha is as a place. Um, so, essentially, Golgotha is mentioned in all four of the canonical Gospels that we have as being the place where Jesus was crucified. So that's in Mark, chapter 15, verse 22, um, chapter 27, verse 33, uh, as well, Luke, chapter 23, verses 33, and uh, John, chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. Um, and Luke, uh, he, he omits the Aramaic name Golgotha and refers to the locality only in the Greek translation as Quote, unquote, a place called skull and it's important to note that the original uh word here golgotha it doesn't necessarily mean referring to like a head poking out of the ground or something uh so you know we typically in the hollywood movies we see like the hill of calvary and it's like a, a hill that you're sitting on and jesus and then you have the three people obviously the church of the holy sepulcher what's what's there now 
you can never get three crosses up there on on what's that on that direct spot so we're looking really at the general vicinity here and and it's important to note that um the traditional site of the church of the holy sepulcher is located on a tilled saddle um of part of the slope of a hill possibly uh once known as mount garib um but yeah th this would not have looked in any way like a hill um, so it would have looked more like an elongated crater. Uh, so that's something that's interesting that um, people get confused with in the modern day movies. Um, so just understand that when we're talking about Golgotha and um, place of the head or the skull or that sort of thing. And this area was used as a quarry dating all the way back to the 10th to the 8th centuries BC. So one thing here that's important is in terms of the area, what refers to Golgotha? Is it this specific spot, the Rock of Calvary, or is it a wider area? So believe it or not, the Gospel of John gives us the clear impression that Golgotha was not a small specific locality, uh, you know, associated with the death of Jesus, but it was actually a much larger region, just as Joan E. Taylor argues. Uh, we're informed here that Jesus was crucified in the Topos named Golgotha, John chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. Uh, so, quote unquote, in the place, Topos or Golgotha, where he was crucified, there was a garden, a kapos in Greek. And in the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So, here, John is telling us, he gives us this visual image that may be shown pictorially as like circles, the largest circle of which is Golgotha as the uh, a topos, a place or a region overall. Um, and then Jesus was both crucified and buried here in two different spots that need not necessarily be side by side, which is what the Church of Catholic tradition says in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I think that that's probably false. Um, it could be two different spots where he was buried and where he was crucified. And indeed, as we'll find out, that seems to be what the Gospels are saying. So that's why I agree with the archaeologist Dr. Taylor here, historian and archaeologist. The, so yeah, the, the maximum distance between these to, two locations obviously will depend on how large an area that Golgotha was, how big of a quote-unquote topos was Golgotha. And no source uh, tells us that the tomb and the place of the crucifixion were very close to one another. Um, in fact, we get the opposite impression if you just read the Gospels. So, essentially the issue here is that the early church tended also to imagine that Golgotha was a region rather than a specific small place. So, the ancient early Christian church fathers agreed with the Gospels and agreed with uh, Taylor here against Catholic tradition. So, the, the Rock of Calvary was really determined as the actual location of the crucifixion um, it's, it still didn't even become the definitive Golgotha, though, until about the 6th century AD. Uh, before that, it was always just called the Rock of the Cross. Uh, in St. Jerome, for example, or Geria. Um, and, you know, the Basilica itself was, quote-unquote, on Golgotha. Um, but again, until the 6th century AD, Golgotha was thought of as a large area, historically. Uh, a region or an area, a topos in the Greek. So, yeah, um, Dr. Shimon Gibson and uh, Joni Taylor did archaeological uh, findings. They did actually explore the geographical features of the area of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, 
and beyond as they existed at the time of Jesus. And basically they, they reviewed the archaeological findings and determined, look, the entire area had been used as an Iron Age quarry, characterized by irregular rock cuttings, scarps, and caves. And the area itself is on a slope, uh, but that slope, it's been substantially cut away because of the quarrying activity. So this confirms the Gospels confirmed. It's a wider topos when we're talking Golgotha. It's not a spot, it's an area. So that's the main point I wanted to get through to you guys. And uh, we learn from Jerome, for example, kind of confirms the Gospel of Matthew 27, 33, where Golgotha was known as, quote-unquote, the place of beheading. And Jerome also noted that this was the local Jerusalem jargon for, quote-unquote, execution place. So, you know, the areas outside of Jerusalem where criminals were executed were called Golgothas. There's plural. In his own day. Uh, so this is in the 4th century AD. So you can see how things... There's not the place, the area that's Golgotha. There's multiple Golgothas where criminals are executed and it's the place of their beheadings and stuff like that. And this kind of reflects local Christian tradition um, where they started to talk about execution places as Golgothas because of what happened to Jesus and that, you know, Jesus was executed at this place of horror. So that's where this tradition for calling places Golgothas in Jerome comes from. Okay, so where was this location? So as I said, I'm, I'm using Taylor as my primary source, and she says it wasn't actually the traditional site, uh, which on the map you're seeing on your YouTube video, that's Y, labeled Y. Um, Z is the tomb of Jesus with the Holy Sepulchre or whatever. Um, but actually, she thinks where Jesus was crucified is all the way down south near the first wall, the letter represented by the letter X and the circle. And that's her proposal for the site of the crucifixion, again, within the wider area of Golgotha. And she's, you know, she makes an argument, uh, read that in her source, I'm not going to go over that, but great argument that that matches all the gospel data as well as information we get from early historical sources in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, uh, as well as from the 4th century AD, um, where it's next to the Geneth Gate. Uh, and then there's this this main western and northern road, old northern road going out uh, right next to the second wall. Um, so I, I think that this is, I'm convinced by, I'm persuaded by this. I believe that this is probably true. And I, I again, I'm not going to go into our arguments about the, cruci the site of the crucifixion necessarily, but I think that that adds the case for the minimal historical Jesus and that sort of thing. Obviously, we can argue that there was a historical Jesus that was crucified and that sort of thing. And yeah, what we're caring about, I want to care about the tomb. The tomb was remembered and that sort of thing. So that's what most scholars agree with and that scholarly consensus is about. So let's focus on the evidence for this. Okay, great. So, so, so far up to, we've been considering that there's this general region called Golgotha. Um, and I mentioned that uh, Taylor has her own unique hypothesis about where the specific location of the crucifixion is on the southern edge of that region. But the site of the tomb of Jesus is where the Holy Church of the Holy Sepulchre is uh, right now in that area right there. So essentially we get from the Gospels, look, this fits because the tomb was said to be far away, not next to the place of crucifixion, next to the busy roads up by the gates. Remember Romans, when you crucified, they were 
in front of the roads. They wanted people to see you. They wanted you to know you the people to know you're a criminal. If you go against Rome, this is what happens to you. But the garden is much more an, a much more isolated locality, right? And the Gospel of John indicates that the area of the tomb was in a garden, and that there it was even a gardener and stuff like that. So this this suggests strongly. The Gospel suggests that the place of the burial in the tomb was further away. It was in a more isolated location compared to where he was crucified. And that's why I agree with Taylor. So yeah, the archaeological evidence, believe it or not, um, through excavations of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, actually indicates that, number one, topsoil was either thrown in or that it's uh, the topsoil has built up naturally in the pit of the quarry in various sections in that area. So what we learn from that is, look, the, the Geneth or Garden's Gate, this is the gate Jesus would have went out to to be crucified, may have gained its name from the fact that this region was quite intensively farmed, despite the irregular features of the topography and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, this this isn't a problem. This makes seems to make sense because, well, tombs and cultivated areas, farming areas, could actually lie side by side, therefore explaining the garden, because the uncleanness of tombs didn't affect cultivations. Um, so yeah, this goes hand in hand and seems to make sense with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre areas. The, the fact that there was topsoil thrown in or that built up naturally in, in some of the sections of the quarry underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Gospels confirmed. That proves there was a garden. There must have been a tilled ground and, and uh, it was kept by someone. It was a garden. Gospels confirmed. Great, grand, and groovy. We're off to a great start. Next, some atheists and skeptics have tried to label a negative evidence against um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being the burial tomb, and they've raised this negative evidence. And they said, well, well look, there's nothing that uh, can be said in terms of an absolute or categorical way to falsify that the traditional site of the tomb at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, in fact, genuine. But it's, isn't it a curious fact, you know, uh, bringing up suspicions for you, why is it that no Christian source before Constantine noted the offensive conjunction of, of a temple of Venus and the place of Jesus' uh, entombment? Wouldn't they have complained about it and been talking about it? The early church fathers saying, oh, they put up this sacrilegious temple of pagan Venus, uh, vile pagan filth, uh, defiling Jesus's to the place of Jesus's tomb we don't have any Christian sources complaining and they'll say that well that proves um, that it must not be connected they didn't see the connection now Taylor kind of scolds these skeptics these hyper skeptics and says well hold on um, skepticism does not completely suffice here because you know in, in the first place we're just speculating on how the Jerusalem church sought to hold on to the memory of its locations of places and that sort of thing and you have no business doing that and that sort of thing because uh, we're often surprised about how the witnesses of the mid-second century passed on the information that such and site such and such a site was covered over by such and such a structure and that sort of thing so the, the pr precise location could very well have just been determined by people standing on the surviving walls and figuring this out by recourse of various landmarks still visible. For example, there is the rocky protrusion, later known as, quote-unquote, the Rock of the Cross, 
uh, in the early church before the 6th century AD, before everything was transformed into Golgotha, under the name Golgotha at that point. Uh, and that very likely did indeed have a statue of Venus, the goddess Venus at the top of it. We, you know, it was a libation altar found in the excavations close to the Rock of Calvary. So, yeah, there was some kind of shrine there, and that's how they remembered. Not only that, but Byzantine Christians would find the newly revealed uh, conjunction a telling indication of Hadrian's determination to wipe out the memory of various sites, you know, and, and um, important to the Christian story. He was trying to wipe them out. Uh, the early church father, Jerome, wrote to his friend, Paulinus of Nola, complaining, you know, Hadrian had placed, quote-unquote, an image of Jupiter on the place of the resurrection, the tomb, and a marble statue of Venus on the rock of the cross in order to defile our holy places so that they could deprive us of our faith in the passion and the resurrection. So, yeah, polemic and a, a later consciousness of, quote-unquote, holy places aside, if Jerome is correct about the placement of the statues... Um, such as that statue of Venus, then the statue of Jupiter seems to have been located very appropriately uh, just where Constantine's excavators found a tomb and built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it's certainly, in, uh, according to the world's experts and archaeologists, it is certainly very possible that the Church preserved the information that the tomb of Jesus was located somewhere under the temenos of the Temple of Venus um, even though no extant source ever mentions this or, or alludes to it in covert form. You know, if, if those Jerusalem Christians could remember the site of the crucifixion as being in the middle of the colonnaded street, for example, in terms of the crucifixion, well, then they could probably pass on the memory of the site of the tomb as well through the statues of Venus and the landmarks. So, yeah, I don't think that this argument from hyper-skeptics uh, really goes through. Um, it, it proves nothing. It's just, uh, again, absence of evidence does not prove evidence of absence, but the skeptics keep doing it without any proof that we would expect a mention of it. Um, no, there's lots of ways they could have preserved it through landmarks and preserved their memory of these locations. Now, another argument, one that kind of changed the mind of Taylor, the famous world-famous archaeologist and historian here, is, is kind of well, it's the problem, how did Constantine's workmen or the Empress Helena, when they're in Jerusalem, how did they identify that this tomb, where they built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is in fact genuine? Um, well, Taylor says, well, this is a reason for thinking that it's authentic, because they immediately recognize that this is the one. Jesus was right here. It was self-evident to them. Oh, on what factor would it be self-evident? You know. The tomb is is uh, be described as being a new one at the time of Jesus. So maybe that, okay, they could tell from the dating of it a little bit. Uh, does it look really old or is it relatively new, just a couple hundred years old? It also mentions that it was it had a ledge seen from the entranceway in its totality, um, where angels sat on each side of the ledge. So the biblical stories, um, though they differ slightly in details, um, or seem to, I should say, they are totally consistent in the presentation of the tomb. They don't give us the impression that the tomb was a kochim or koch type family tomb. In those types of tombs, you only see sort of a standing pit depression, and you can only see the feet of whoever has been laid in the koch, K-O-K-H, or K-O-K. -K. So therefore, um, 
it must have conformed to the proper type of tomb as per the biblical stories, and that is the Archosoleum-type tomb with a ledge quite near the entrance. Um, so this was an, perhaps the indicator for Helena. But one thing I want to mention here is, oops, Dale, don't you remember with the Nazareth inscription? You were, it was against people with cock tombs, family tombs and stuff like that. And you said only that applies to Jesus and stuff like that. But now you're saying Jesus must have had, biblically speaking, an archosolium tomb, not a cock or a cockim type tomb. Yes. So according to the Bible, and Claudius wasn't expected to know all the details of the gospel accounts. He was just saying, oh, I know about these cockim type family type tombs. And he just made it a, a false assumption. He wasn't there in Jerusalem. He didn't know Christian, the Christian gospel stories. He just heard from hearsay. So he got that detail wrong in the Nazareth inscription. Not a problem at all. It's still obvious that it's Jesus that it's talking about. And it's still obvious whether Archosolium tombs or Cochim tombs, these are unique to the Jews. Uh, pagans, no way. Cremation or inhumation buried in the ground. That's how they did it. Individual, to, individual uh, cemetery stones and individual burials and stuff like that. That's how the pagans did it. Only the Jews here. So, um, yeah. Nothing uh, changes in terms of the Nazareth inscription. That uh, It's not a problem just because Claudius mentioned one type of tomb, but we're now saying, well, we know biblically that Jesus didn't have that type of tomb. Claudius made a mistake, and he actually had an Archosolium-type tomb. Um, who cares? Uh, Claudius just screwed up. The trouble with this explanation is, well, look, that, that wouldn't become... It still wouldn't be self-evident. There was a lot of Archosolium type tombs. So there had to be some kind of identifying character or feature. And Taylor's argument is, well, look, there, there is nothing um, that would uh, distinguish it. And usually people appeal to an attesting miracle in this time. Oh, God, an angel appeared and said, this is it. This is the tomb. Oh, now I know it's the right one. Interestingly, we don't get this from Helena or Constantine's peeps. Or anything. There's no mention of, oh, and a miracle happened and showed me the spot. Or, uh, you know, an image of the cross uh, floated and took me exactly to the tomb where our Lord had been slain. So, no. What what was it that made it self-evident that this thing was the tomb of our, our, our Lord, Jesus Christ? How did they know that? Uh, just obviously. And it's because there had been absolute proof. It had been preserved. And it would had telling features that a natural person could just naturally know and consider to be self-evident um you know and, and this is like i said Joni taylor this was one of her reasons for being a skeptic originally and when she actually thought about it and looked into the matter and researched in depth she realized that was rubbish absolutely this is not a problem and this proves it must be authentic because in her words quote unquote it seems to me that the fact that the tomb was considered self-evident is one of the most important factors that points to the probable authenticity of the traditional site of Jesus' burial tomb. The traditional view has one key element in its favor, though one that is usually completely ignored. It gives us a perfect reason why no physical proof or legitimating miracle was required for anyone to believe that the tomb was genuine. The reason it was genuine was that it was precisely in the right place 
under the statue of Jupiter as everyone in the Jerusalem church believed. Uh, so people only had to remove the statue of Jupiter, find out, yep, there's the perfect tomb of Jesus just exactly underneath as everybody said. Uh, no further proof was required. It, it requires us to believe basically Hadrian did indeed cover up the tomb purposefully and placed a statue of Jupiter on top of it. And then she, she goes on and says, quote unquote, previously I have felt that this course of action would not have occurred to Hadrian, who was hardly the most vociferous opponent of Christians. Remember in our part two show, we read Hadrian. He was quite temperate. Um, he wasn't trying to wipe the Christians out or go after them. He, he was kind of just like Trajan. He's like, well, if they're a problem, you got to do what you got to do, but don't go seeking them and stuff like that. Don't, don't go out of your way. Well, that's, well, that's not true here. Um, actually, Hadrian uh, hated the Jews and Christian, Jewish Christians and that sort of thing. After the Bar Kokhba rebellion, he was outraged. That's why we got Palestine instead of Judea. And, uh, you know, the Palestinians versus Jews today and stuff like that. It all started here, this hatred towards Jews in the second century uh, to a massive scale. And this is where Christians started distancing themselves from Jews for all eternity for the rest of time and that sort of thing because of the Bar Kokhba rebellion that peeved off Hadrian like heck and he hated all Jews and Jewish Christians and that sort of thing so after that yeah that's why he uh, changed his tune and wanted to wipe them out and wipe out their memory and wipe out their religions and remember even though Hadrian Hadrian's temperance is about not punishing innocent people that are anonymously charged as Christians he still hit both he and Trajan both said if they are a true Christian and they hold to their beliefs, eliminate those guys. Wipe them out. He was an evil, satanic, bad guy. Uh, and that's undeniable. So, yeah, he didn't like Christians. Just because he was somewhat temperate and saying, well, you've got to examine things. You've got to look into it. Don't just mindlessly believe anybody who says, oh, this guy over here, John Doe, he's a Christian. Kill him. Uh, no, examine it. But if he was a Christian, you wipe him out. That's what the evil Hadrian, pagan Hadrian, would have said. And so it makes perfect sense to the Sitzim Lieben that Hadrian would have wanted to eradicate Christianity, especially after he was peeved off with the Bar Kokhba rebellion. He was wiping Jerusalem out uh, because of their second revolt. And, you know, Jewish Christians, you say this is your, your thing? The heck with that site. Your little fake god that Suetonius and Tacitus report on, you worship that you worship that guy's god? I'm going to show you the true god, the god that I like, Jupiter. And he placed the statue of Jupiter right on top of the tomb of Jesus. Uh, makes perfect sense. Uh, it absolutely fits. And it's absolute proof that uh, this is an argument in favor that the tomb is, in fact, authentic. There was a tomb underneath the statue of Jupiter, and the Christians uh, remembered the location of Jesus' tomb through the location of the statue of Jupiter that Hadrian put on top of it the time of Helena and Constantine came and said look here's the statue of Jupiter take there's the tomb uh, bada boom bada bing scientifically proven fact from their point point of view um, so so yeah that's why it was self-evident because it was preserved in memory through this act of pagan disrespect that God used providentially um, to give us the actual location of Jesus of where he was buried in the tomb so that we could Today in the 21st century, uh, mop the floor with mythicists who want to pretend that Jesus never existed as a historical figure. Uh, thanks, thanks, Hadrian. You played your part. Um, 
God's plan. That's amazing. Another bit of evidence comes from quoting apocryphal literature in uh, Christian heretics and that sort of thing. And one of them that's the strongest is is the so-called quote-unquote Achimim fragment. Otherwise, it's uh, the lost gospel of Peter. And there it, it's stated that Joseph took Jesus, washed him, wrapped him in linen, and brought him to his own sepulcher called Joseph's Garden. That's that's the interesting bit. Quote, unquote, Joseph's Garden. Now, that's an interesting name for the location because it sounds very much like the sort of name that would have been applied uh, to the site as time went by, not beginning with. That was Golgotha. But then it became associated as Joseph's Garden in order to identify it more precisely. Not only that, in addition to this new name, uh, not deriving from the canonical Gospels, this is an independent tradition, uh, it's also certainly likely that if Joseph owned the tomb, he owned the garden outside it. So the tomb would probably have been newly cut in a plot of land that uh, Joseph of ancient Arimathea would have purchased. The tomb is named uh, by reference to the garden is intriguing. Uh, because that might actually reflect the language of the period after 41 to 44 AD, when that evil bad guy, remember Herod Agrippa I, uh, who killed the Apostle James and died in agony by eaten, eaten alive and were by worms, according to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12. You know, he this happened after he included the area within his third wall of Jerusalem. Ah, this is interesting for dating and. Uh, something that's interesting because it provides absolute proof that this is authentic, almost. Uh, again, forget the bombastic language. It, it provides very strong evidence that it belonged to Jesus. Because King Herod Agrippa I, that uh, de tyrannical despot of a king of, of Judea, from 41 to 44 AD, he was uh, persecuting innocent Christians and doing his thing. Um, but he also uh, kind of went over the area where Jesus was crucified and the garden outside of the, the gate there, and he created this third wall. So with this innovation, tombs would have been emptied. Uh, you know, the tombs that were already cut would no longer have been used. And, um, you know, the garden, though, would still probably have been a garden. Uh, even though he's building this third wall. So within the walls of the city, people could easily have gone to quote-unquote Joseph's garden and looked into the unused cave or tomb. Um, so, so this is interesting because it puts, puts a date, right? Uh, this tomb must have been in use before 41 to 44 AD, just like Jesus and that sort of thing. So uh, Caleb Jackson also mentions this point where he's saying, look, the original set of walls, the first and second walls, were later expanded by King Herod Agrippa, 41 to 44 AD, were completed before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, during which they were completely destroyed. So this indicates the tradition of the Holy Sepulchre representing Jesus dates to, at the latest, the 40s AD. Um, as, you know, the site of the original walls was lost later on to make way for the new set of walls. And obviously, had the site been later, then legendary invention um, would have been expected that Jesus' tomb would be outside Jerusalem's expanded wall rather than its original wall. Um, so this is the mark of authenticity and the biggest piece of evidence, according to Caleb Jackson as well, according to 
the archaeologists and scholars that uh, Caleb's relying on, and, and including jo Joni Taylor that I'm using here, look, uh, this has to date really early, saying this is Jesus' tomb right here in Joseph's garden, reflecting the walls as they were prior to 41 AD, prior to Herod Agrippa's expansion and third wall building program when those tombs would have had to have been emptied and stopped being used and forgotten about. Um, interesting, and, and that's an issue, that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the walls of Jerusalem. They don't do, they bury you outside the walls, right? Well, in the time of Jesus up until Herod Agrippa, that was outside the tomb. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre's location was outside the walls of Jerusalem. Interesting. But that was totally wiped out and destroyed by Herod Agrippa when he built this new third wall, and therefore later Christians. It can't be a later legend. It dates to the time of Christ, all the way back, 40 AD or earlier, or something like in the 40s AD at, at the maximum. And the garden was remembered, and it, it acquired this name because it was no longer a graveyard when it was inside the new walls. So it got the name Joseph's Garden as a way to remember, and you could see the empty tomb and, and remember it that way. So, so this is absolute powerful evidence that links it and probably means, yeah, that the tradition is very early, dating to the time of the early apostles, and therefore very probably was Jesus's actual tomb that, that was being location was being preserved throughout this time. So archaeologists and scholars basically say, look, there's only two alternatives here. In, in the first place, there's an argument against the authenticity of the tomb, namely, well, Constantine chose the site of the Temple of Venus for his new basilica in honor of the cross in the tomb because it was a good location for redevelopment, pure coincidence. Hadrian, well, he built his temple on the site for no other reason other than it was a prime building location. Uh, total coincidence and uh you know it was basically a byzantine a later byzantine choice of the tomb as being that of christ was totally arbitrary and dependent on architectural layout of the new structure and this is why we have the church of the holy sepulcher today that is so ad hoc it is ridiculous and coincidental it's ridiculous the odds against that are ridiculous to believe but on the other hand there's the credible hypothesis of authenticity that Virtually all PhD archaeologists and historians today acknowledge is true, um, where it says, look, Golgotha was originally a wider area, an oval-shaped, disused ancient quarry uh, located west of the second wall and just north of the first wall. It was um, kind of looked like an elongated crater in appearance. It had a garden with some graveyards uh, nearby within the area. Jesus was crucified in the southern part or in a different location next to the roads, out just outside of the Ginoth Gate and near to the road going west. Um, and then he was buried about 200 meters away uh, to the north in a much more isolated part of Golgotha, the area of Golgotha where the tombs and the gardens were. And the tombs in this region were then subsequently emptied out when the region was included within the new city in 41 to 44 AD when Herod Agrippa I built the third wall around the city. Um, but the garden, even though the cemeteries weren't being used and the bodies were wiped out and moved out of the city, the garden nonetheless was still used and it adopted the name of Joseph's Garden, an independent 
not tradition not recorded in the Gospels to remember the location of Jesus' tomb. So, yeah, Christians in the city would have visited the site, recalled events in the various ways. Then in the mid-2nd century, major changes took place in this part of the city. Emperor Hadrian came around and he covered up the tomb, putting a statue of Jupiter on top as himself to punish the innocent Christians. And they remembered the location and said, yep, the the statue of Jupiter in the temp later on the Temple of Venus, that is exactly where the tomb of Jesus is. And that was recorded all the way up until Helena and Constantine captured the Eastern Empire and sought to commemorate his victory with building up, you know, the, the magnificent structures in Jerusalem. And uh, local Christians remembering the tradition, yep, Jup statue of Jupiter in the Temple of Venus. That's where our Lord and Savior was buried. You know, Constantine's excavators and Helena took a look, saw that there was a first century tomb underneath, and said, absolute proof, this is where Jesus was buried. And they built the church, and the rest is uh, history. So yeah, given the monumental earliness of this tradition, going back to even the 40, 40s AD or, or earlier, um, in terms of the tradition of this empty tomb, with the eyewitnesses of Jesus always linking this thing with Jesus in terms of the tomb, I think that it's this is very strong evidence. And again, we've got the scholarly consensus on our side. So I'm about uh, minimally 70 to 75 percent proven that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre preserves the accurate burial site or tomb of Jesus, the historical Jesus, thereby proving there was in fact a minimal historical Jesus, founder of the Christian Church who died, was buried in the tomb, and subsequently that tomb was vacated or empty, implying therefore there was a resurrection or something like that. But the minimal historical Jesus hypothesis doesn't need that. The Holy Sepulchre evidence doesn't prove that the resurrection happened, but it implies it. Um, and nonetheless, that minimal historical Jesus definitely entailed. I give that the 70 to 75% degree proven uh, based on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Okay, great. So that does it for the two archaeolo positive archaeological evidences there. However, with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we mentioned that there's the Protestant garden tomb. That's a joke. Nobody nobody believes that is really Jesus. There, there are tons of proofs against it. For one thing, the tomb is way too, centuries old, 7th century BC, 8th century BC, something like that. So we, everybody knows it's a historically proven fact that isn't the tomb. Ah, but Dr. James Tabor, there's the Telpiet tomb and the uh, Jesus ossuary that purports to preserve Jesus' tomb and, and or his ossuary as well. So, so this would be a positive evidence proving that there is a minimal historical Jesus, if true. But doesn't that contradict the Church of the Holy Sepulchre evidence? What You mean two tombs? What is it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or is it the Telpiet tomb? And obviously the problem with the Telpiet tomb is that denies, it doesn't deny the minimal historical Jesus, but it denies the Christian Jesus because it denies the resurrection. There's a bone box with G, supposedly Jesus' bones still left inside or whatever. Um, so that denies the resurrection. Christianity is false. Who cares if we get a minimal historical Jesus if that's inconsistent with the Christian Jesus? That's no good for us. So we've got to address the Telpiot tomb. Um, findings and come get to the bottom of that. So that's, I'm going to get straight into that right now.
just so you know, uh, so I'm going to do that instead of getting into, because this is already two hours, so instead of getting into rabbinic sources, that'll be in part four, and I'll just push things back. Uh, in part three, I'm just going to look at archaeological sources. So I want to finish off the Telpia tomb, and perhaps I'll look at a new finding about apparently some scholars on a documentary on CNN's claim to have found Jesus's house in Nazareth, attesting to his life. That's nice, something different. Um, so I'm going to quickly look at that. So yeah, so let me finish off the Telpia tomb counterclaim and address that, and also perhaps look into this archaeological finding of Jesus's home, potentially. Uh, and that will wrap it up for part three here. Okay, so the Utopia tomb uh, was a tomb complex that was discovered in the 1980s during a construction project. And essentially they found uh, various ossuaries. So what ossuaries are, basically they're bone boxes. The Jews would put the dead body into the tomb for a year. They would rot away, leaving behind the bones. They would put the bones in these boxes or ossuaries. Uh, for the final burial and that sort of thing. So that's what these ossuaries were. They found about 10 of them in this Telpia tomb. Um, and it had a weird symbol on it and that sort of thing. And uh, six of these had inscriptions on them that with names that are relevant. So they had Jesus, son of Joseph. Ooh. They had Maria, hmm, the mother of Jesus herself. They had Miriam, hmm, Mary Magdalene. Perhaps his wife, uh, skeptics, hyper-skeptics kind of speculated it, and that sort of thing. Uh, there was Jose. Uh, well, that's the name of a brother of Jesus. There was also a guy named Matthew. Well, that's not in the Bible. That doesn't fit. Um, but they said, well, let's just pretend he was a brother or something. Uh, maybe it fits. Um, and then they also found uh, James, uh, the son of Joseph and brother of Jesus. Hmm. Sounds like the... The New Testament, uh, and then interestingly, they also found uh, Judah, the son of Jesus. Uh, so that's speculated to be the son of Mary Magdalene and Jesus, who were married or and had a kid or something like that, according to these hyper skeptics that use this Telpia tomb finding. And they say, well, there's this weird symbol um, on top of it. Well, maybe that's an early Christian symbol that's associated with the Apostle Peter and that sort of thing. So. This is Jesus' tomb. You've got the hyper-skeptic, Dr. James Tabor, who was very biased. And he kind of said, well, this is proof that it, these names and their combinations, look, the odds are 1 in 600 that this is not the tomb of Jesus. In other words, it's very, very probable, 599 chance out of 600 chance that this is the tomb of Jesus based on the statistical analysis of the combination of these names in the tomb. They're very rare, very unique. Um, so that's it, we found Jesus' tomb. Bada boom, bada bang, proof. The resurrection is false, Christianity is false. We got Jesus' uh, bone box right here. He, he didn't raise from the dead. Your faith is in vain and that sort of thing. Uh, now, what's interesting here is that this proves there was a minimal historical Jesus in a way. There, there was a historical Jesus at least. Not necessarily the minimal historical Jesus, because that would be inconsistent. The Jesus, historical Jesus of the Telpiate tomb is inconsistent with the Christian Jesus of the New Testament writings. The Telpiate tomb Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We got his bones in a box and that sort of thing. And he had a son with Mary Magdalene and all that nonsense that skeptics and atheists like to play out there. So... 
that's what what this finding is and what the skeptics hyper skeptics claim about it and obviously this this refutes mythicism so richard carrier speaks out against this saying this is total rubbish you're a fool if you believe in any of this so he's on our side against the telpia tomb here refuting it i'm going to link to his little blog article talking about how the the statistics were totally fudged and everything like that um so yeah um okay so so what do we say by evaluation and obviously this dates from the first it possibly dates to the first century a.d and that sort of thing as a tomb okay so the first thing to note here right out of the gate scholarly consensus the world's experts every literally everyone with a phd except for the very biased dr james tabor the only one all the scholars archaeologists whether jewish atheist agnostic mythicists or or jesus historicist christian we all agree everyone says uh you're an ignorant fool if you believe that the, this telpia tomb is real and belong to jesus nobody believes that and for very good reason so all the scholars dr shimon gibson the uh, ammo uh, you know the head of the iaa they, they've all proven it the world's experts in statistics because as we'll see statistics comes in here with the the names and that sort of thing have have all refuted this and it really became sensationalized when um in early to early 2000s there was a documentary the lost tomb of jesus james cameron was behind it so whoa hollywood we got great production value look look at this uh documentary we have giving this ridiculous outlandish and um quite frankly outright lies they lied to the people on purpose lied to you and that's historically scientifically proven fact all the experts agree and you'll see this but um yeah they they tricked a bunch of experts like dr shimon gibson and that sort of into giving sort of cameos um to explain you know what this is about and they fudged it fudged the data fudged the statistics they fudged the experts and edited it to make it look like they were supporting this thing when in fact all the experts were so outraged after this thing came out at how they manipulated the people um that they all came out and gave another documentary refuting this nonsense and proving that it was a complete farce uh, because they were so outraged at being taken out of context in support of this telpia tomb so that says a lot if the scholars themselves are so outraged we got to make another documentary refuting that nonsense that you know these liars from hollywood james cameron made it look like we support them um so yeah that that's sort of the first argument right there scholarly consensus overwhelming the telpia tomb is not authentic the exact opposite with the church of the holy sepulcher those same scholars jewish atheists christians world's experts in archaeology all agree church of the holy sepulcher authentic tomb very probably authentic tomb so that's an interesting contrast right there if you just want to be intellectually lazy and just go i follow the scholars then you're going to agree with me the christian and say well the church of the holy sepulcher is it that proves there's a minimal historical jesus the telpia tomb which allow which proves a historical jesus so mythicists are upset but nonetheless it also proves not a minimal historical jesus or a jesus that's consistent with christianity it falsifies the christian jesus so christians don't like that um everyone agrees horse trash total rubbish if you believe the telpia tomb okay so that's it for my bombastic rhetoric um but i, I wanted to say it that way 
you know, and bombastic rhetoric because I wanted to sink into you guys. This is serious. The the scholars, the vast majority of scholars, 99.9999% of all the scholars who know it, strongly disagree with the Telpia tomb and agree with the probable authenticity of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So with that said, let's let's get into, get away from the bombastic rhetoric and let's get into the actual evidence that's presented by people like Dr. James Tabor to try and say that this uh, Telpia tomb and the ossuaries inside prove the uh, Jesus, the non-Christian historical Jesus existed. Okay, so the first thing that uh, scholars like Dr. James Tabor and the, you know, these hyper-skeptics will try and argue here is, well, the names are, are rare. Some of the names are rare. So Maria, that's a unique, according to James Tabor in the, the Lost Tomb documentary. By the way, I'm, I'm linking the Lost Tomb documentary in favor of the Telpia tomb, as well as that counter-refutation documentary. So you can see the contrast there. Uh, just go to my blog and you can find the YouTube videos. But um, yeah, the, they'll claim James Tabor, this is totally unique. The name Maria, not found anywhere else on any of the ossuaries. Uh, Mary Amni, that's Mary Magdalene, uh, that's a common name in Greek, they'll admit that. Um, Jose, J-O-S-E, well that's a rare name, um, that's, that's not always mentioned there. And then Jesus, son of Joseph, that's very, a unique indicator and it seems to be very rare, according to these hyper-skeptics at least. Um, so what do the actual world's experts have to say about that? Is it true that these names are rare? Nope, they lied to you. Absolute proof that these names were common. Majority of people had these names. Uh, Maria, very common. And if you see the documentary, you can see it with your own eyeballs. If you can read the Greek, it's right there. Maria, 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 multiple times. There in the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority catalog, um, there, we have about 231 ossuaries, at least at that time. They probably have more now, but this is back in 2007, in and around that time, um, that uh, this new documentary is coming out. And we proved there's at least 10 ossuaries inscribed the name Maria. It's not unique. It was common. Same with uh, Mariam, Mariam uh, the Greek version. That's extremely common everywhere. All the scholars agree. Same with Jesus, son of Joseph, very common. Um, there, you know, in terms of Jose, Jesus' brother, J-O-S-E, uh, there's 19 occurrences of this, very common name. So uh, basically these documentaries lied to you. They directly lied on purpose to trick you into thinking that, oh, well, there's only one possibility here. No, all of these names are very common. Don't fall for tricks and lies. Actual Reference the actual experts, the ones that actually own the archaeological artifacts and are in charge of uh, cataloging them and that sort of thing. They all agree, nope, these are totally common and there's nothing unique about them at all. Uh, so, so yeah, there's nothing about the, the names themselves that proves this was the historical Jesus or linked to the historical Jesus and his family. Okay, well, what about that, um, now there's the second part though, and they'll say, well, it's not so much just the names in the tomb, but the statistics, a statistical analysis of the combination of the names, that makes it unique. And James Tabor, 
used an actual statistician and they came up with odds of 1 in 600 that the tomb is not the, of the family of Jesus. So again, 559, uh, 599 out of 600 chance that it is the tomb of Jesus. Very, 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 very probable given the combination of, of these names that it did belong to Jesus. So that's very powerful. Unfortunately, the actual world's experts and statistical community uh, have scientifically and mathematically proven that this is total rubbish. Uh, again, they lied. Well, they didn't lie. They fudged the data. And uh, you can see this. It's been mathematically proven. They manipulated the data in various ways. Again, Richard Carrier, the mythicist, agrees with this too, and he consulted certain uh, world's experts. And I'll be uh, including in the blog... Um, articles by the world's expert statistician, Drs. Cost and Dr. Inger Manson, who uh, did the ma rigorous mathematical analysis and proved that what they did in that front, they used, utilized various um, assumptions that were dishonest. Um, it was severely flawed, and this is why the entire international statistics community has disowned these results. It, it's just garbage because of the methods that they used. Right, so in the first place, their paper never went under peer scientific peer review in the statistics literature because it would be bounced instantly. Um, secondly, they utilized various non-proven assumptions in order to make this work. So let me quote uh, famous mythicist Richard Carrier from his blog, again, uh, linked, I'm providing the link uh, on my blog page. You can click the link and read Richard Carrier with your own eyes. But he said, Richard Carrier says, quote unquote, they had the people from the lost tomb, James Tabor and the others, did have a mathematician backing them, Dr. Andre Ferrer-Verger. But his math has been consistently bogus from day one. For example, even though we have vastly better odds of randomly getting a name in a group of 10 to 30 bodies than in a group of five, he kept running the math for five, even though there were 10 to 30 bodies buried in that tomb. He also adopted a number of dubious and outright refuted factual assumptions, for example, regarding the names of the women in the tomb, um, as one instance. Um, so by these devices, this is how he arrives at the odds of 600 to one in favor of this being the actual tomb of the historical Jesus. On the other hand, Inger Manson and Dr. Koss, the credible statisticians, apply the correct math. Bayes' theorem, valid historical premises based on the actual evidence we have, such as uh, you know the proper treatment of the variables and the correct mathematical models, and by, for example, just acknowledging that more than five people were buried there. There was actually 10 to 30. Um, and by that, they find that um, by standard historical assumptions, the odds are about 1 in 19,000 against the Telpiot tomb being the tomb of the historical Jesus. And they even cheated a little bit to help these radical skeptics and atheists. And they said, uh, by not assuming the standard historical assumptions, and we gave more generous assumptions, the odds at best are 1 in 1,100 against the fact that this tomb... Um, was belonged to the historical Jesus. Um, I'm sorry, uh, this didn't belong to Jesus. Statistic, 
uh, at least not, you can't prove it based on any kind of statistical analysis of the combination of the names on the, the ossuaries. Okay, um, but James Tabor, he's not done. He's like, well, we've got DNA evidence. Ha, gotcha there. Look what we proved. We proved that Miriam, who we're saying is Mary Magdalene, was not of the same family. It wasn't She wasn't the mother or sister of Jesus, son of Joseph or of James and or of Mar- Maria. That proves it. She, she was in the tomb because she was married to Jesus and they had their little son, Judah, the son of Jesus. Oh my goodness, the reasoning here. So in the first place, actual geneticists and, and world's experts, and you'll see this in the documentaries, have completely refuted this nonsense. Um, and they, they conclude collectively, look, all the scientific experts say this data was fudged. The DNA evidence establishes zero, no positive links in the tomb whatsoever. You know, there's no way to prove that Miriam was married to Jesus or uh, whether she was married to Joseph or whether to Matthew or anyone. So there's no proof linking these people. Literally the only uh, family relations or order is we know that Jesus was the son of Joseph and uh, Judah was the son of Jesus. That's all we know um, based on the inscriptions and that sort of thing and the DNA didn't analysis didn't prove anything else beyond that and all the scientists the world's experts and scientists who are secular non-biased all agree that yeah uh sorry the dna analysis is worthless and proves nothing just proves yep miriam wasn't the sister or mother of jesus cool who cares so so yeah uh that that's it with the telpia tomb as i said on my blog page i'm going to provide various scholarly sources on the statistics, you know, from the statisticians I'm talking about, from the mythicist Richard Carrier, from world's experts like Dr. Gary Habermas and biblical scholars, um, and as well, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser's got a great thing, and I'm going to include the links to those two documentaries. So the original Lost Tomb documentary by James Cameron, the very biased one where they lie to you so you can see what they actually say, and then the refutation documentary by the world's experts who were so outraged at being manipulated that they had to come out and reveal the truth against this nonsense. Uh, so you can see both uh, and make up your own mind. But yeah, just kind of ending off here, uh, Gary Habermas has a great way of kind of summarizing on his website here, the 12 major problems for the Telpiate tomb theory, according to leading scholars. So he says, number one, the names Joseph and Jesus were very popular in the first century. Jesus appears in at least 99 tombs and on 22 ossuaries that we have. Joseph appears on 45 ossuaries. Two, Mary is the most common female name in the ancient Jewish world. And that goes same with Maria or Miriam. You know, it's derivative uh, ways of saying it are all very common. Three, the DNA evidence establishes zero positive links in the two, in this tomb whatsoever. Four, the statistical comparison to Jesus of Nazareth is severely flawed. Five, there is no early historical nor tomb connection to Mary Magdalene at all. It's just assumed, asserted and assumed that Miriam is Mary Magdalene. Six, there is no historical evidence anywhere that Jesus ever married or had children. Seven, the Jesus in the tomb was known as son of Joseph, but the earliest followers of the New Testament um, of Jesus didn't call him that. He was son of God, not son of Joseph. 
or the son of man is his favorite term. Um, so son of Joseph, yeah, it doesn't make sense that the early Christians would have said that. Um, eight, it is unlikely that Jesus' family tomb would be located in Jerusalem, um, right? I mean, he's from, his family's from Galilee. Uh, so yeah, they wouldn't, just because Joseph gave Jesus on the spot his tomb, that doesn't mean he'd be like, okay, this is your tomb now, guys. Bring Mary over, bring the family, bring your kitties, have Joseph buried there. Are you kidding me? No, I don't. Come on now. Um, also, eight, it is highly unlikely that Jesus, uh, sorry, the Telpia tomb was costly. It apparently belonged to a very wealthy family. Well, that could fit, but nonetheless, not as a family tomb. Ten, the tenth ossuary has been accounted for without recourse to the James ossuary. So having nothing to do with Jesus' family. Interesting. 11. All ancient sources agree. Very soon afterwards, the burial tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was empty. So you have to go against that. But that's getting into Christian sources. Number 12. The Telpiot tomb data all fail to account for Jesus' resurrection appearances. Again, okay, cool. We're, we're not going to use the 11 and 12 against it. There's also the one last thing, the, that unique symbol, that gable roof over the tomb. And, you know, the in the documentary, they say, well, this is unique. This is a symbol of the Apostle Peter and proves it's an early Christian symbol that, that marks out Jesus' tomb and makes it unique among all Jewish graves and tombs. Um, yeah, uh, wait a few years and historically proven fact, you are a fool if you believe that. Uh, scientifically proven fact, you can see with your own eyeballs, this is a common symbol used in many Jewish tombs, and they have been archaeologically discovered. So that symbol, that gable roof, has nothing to do with early Christianity and is not a unique Christian symbol. It's just a common Jewish thing. It was basically a stamp of the guy who made the tomb. That was his signature of saying, this, I made this, you know, um, this is my thing. Um, so, so yeah, there's nothing special about the symbol that links that to the early Christians in the church. Uh, again, more outlandish lies and speculation on the part of these hyper-skeptics and James Tabor. So you can they can just be simply dismissed as such. It's historically proven fact that that's falsified. So that's it for, for the evidence here. Uh, man, what a failure. Um, so, so yeah, in that case, the Telpiot tomb does not provide an effective counter for a historical yet non-Christian Jesus against the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is fully consistent in establishing there is a minimal historical Jesus, and that that minimal historical Jesus is consistent with the full-on Christian Jesus that rose from the dead, um, as the Christians say, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that covers it for the Telpia tomb. All right, uh, very quickly, I want to get into one last archaeological finding. It's new as of 2015. Um, and I, I wasn't able to find a lot of data on this or scholarly back and forth, so I'll, I'll just mention it. Um, so yeah, um, finishing off the Telpia tomb is a failure. It's less, way less than 50%. It's, it's like 0 to 10% proven that this it proves that there was a historical Jesus or anything like that. Uh, utter failure. The mythicists win on the Telpia tomb, and also the Christians, by extension, also win because they don't want the Telpia tomb to be true. Going back to the new discovery in 2015, so we... Archaeologists say they might have discovered Jesus' actual family house in Nazareth, where he grew up with Joseph and Mary. Incredible. What, what is this about? So, essentially, the story starts with a chance discovery back in 1881. Uh, they discovered an ancient cistern um, shortly after a uh, 
convent was built for nuns. And so the uh, nuns in Nazareth uh, basically uh, got together with some workmen, they began doing some excavations, and they exposed that there was a complex sequence of unusually well-preserved archaeological features, uh, including Crusader era or Crusader period walls and vaults. There is a, a Byzantine cave church uh, and Roman period tombs and other rock-cut and built structures uh, down under the ground of this new convent that they built in the 1880s. So flash forward to today, in 2006, this was all just ignored and that sort of thing. But in 2006, secular archaeologists started to re-examine this site. And it soon became clear that there was a, a lengthy chronological sequence of well-preserved structures and features down there. There was indeed uh, the successive crusader and then Byzantine churches. Uh, there was also two early Roman period tombs down there. Um, a phase of small-scale quarrying, and of particular note, there was a rectilinear structure with partly rock-cut and partly stone-built walls. So this was incredible, because essentially what this does, this matched exactly a document we have from the 7th century AD, which preserves Christian tradition about the Church of the Nutrition. So this guy basically says in the 7th century, well, there's two churches in Nazareth. The Church of the Annunciation that we still maintains to, to this day. I was there in 2013. I visited that. But then there's also the true Church of Nutrition, where Jesus was nurtured. And that was, according to tradition and legend, that was Jesus' childhood home, where Joseph and Mary raised Jesus. Uh, now, unfortunately, that church was destroyed, was lost with the Crusaders, uh, and it became lost to history. And now what modern-day archaeologists are saying, we've rediscovered it. This is what we've discovered. There's this cave church, and there's a first-century AD home that's uh, above the tombs and that sort of thing. So it fits perfectly with the description from the 7th century. It's got a well. It's got uh, those two empty tombs, as well as Joseph's tomb underneath, what's known as Joseph's tomb underneath. And then it's got a house from the first century AD, the time of Jesus. And that's what archaeologist uh, Ken Dark has uh, shocked the world in 2015, saying, I found the home of Jesus. So, so yeah, there's been documentaries on CNN about this, and I've, uh, I will attach to a scholarly peer-reviewed journal article, archaeological article on this, um, explaining exactly what was found and that sort of thing. Yeah, there was various archaeological findings within the home as well that were found. So, for example, we uh, scientifically proved that there was a first century woman that was in the house. There was the spinning uh, spindle, um, there was women's jewelry, like bracelets and that sort of thing that all Jewish women would have, would have worn of a basic variety um, and that sort of thing. Kind of looks like they were a middle, middle class family that lived in this house definitely had a woman uh, who was running running things and uh, was in the house doing her typical Jewish wife uh, chores. Uh, we know that the family was specifically Jewish because of the limestone cooking pots that were found that are particularly only Jews use that. They wouldn't use ceramics to in order to be more kosher. Um, but also this these findings uh, dated specifically to Jesus because the essentially these um, what are called quote-unquote kefar hanaya type pottery or standard domestic pottery of Roman period Galilee 
date precisely. They only came into existence around the turn of the era, 1 AD or later, and they were stopped being used in 70 AD with the Roman conquest and, and that sort of thing and destruction of Jerusalem and everything like that. So precisely, 1st century AD, this is Jesus' time. Wow, this is incredible. So this is a very... Because of these uh, findings in the home, it's very particular. It's a proven fact, archaeologically and historically proven fact. It's a Jewish family from the time of Jesus that's middle class, has a woman that's doing a bunch of stuff that lives in this family, uh, in this first century house. And there's uh, a tomb underneath, underneath that first century house, which dates after the construction of the house, but around the same time, the first century AD, and had had a tomb that it's unfortunately empty because after the time of the Crusaders, they took everything out. But presumably, well, Joseph died when Jesus was still a kid, still a kid sometime after the age of 12, but um, before he started his ministry. So maybe that was the tomb of Joseph. So that's what the archaeological findings are. Now, um, are we able to prove that this is, in fact, the house of Jesus Christ from these findings? Well, obviously not. Um, I, I mean, there is the tradition from the 7th century AD that, well, there's a church built on top of a 1st century Jewish house that dates precisely from the time of Jesus, who were living very kosher with their limestone pots, cooking pots, and everything like that. They were a pious Jewish family. Um, that sounds like Jesus to me. Um, and it just so happens there's only two churches in Nazareth up to the 7th century that the Church of the Annunciation, which we have now, where Gabriel came to Mary, and the Church of the Nutrition, that legend says, tradition says, was the home of Jesus. Again, this is a 7th century AD thing. When did that get started? We have no idea. When did the tradition come? We have no idea. But it's coincidental, isn't it, that it just so happens to be exactly preserved, this Byzantine cave church, exactly preserved over a 1st century pious Jewish family's house where we know for a fact a mother was living and that there was a tomb uh, underneath, built underneath the house in the first century for someone that died. Sounds like Joseph, sounds like Jesus. But I will just say that without further details about the tradition and how it was preserved or, or that sort of thing, I'm agnostic on this. So I would say I'm about 50-50% certain. I don't think we can use it to absolutely prove that there was a minimal historical Jesus and or that Jesus lived in this house um, it's very intriguing very suggestive in my in my opinion um, but there's just from what I've seen there's not really a, a lot of testimony and the, the closest thing we have is that 7th century pilgrim account known as the Dilocus Sanctus uh, which was written by Adam Adamnan of Iona um, so yeah, it comes down to, well, why is this, the Church of Nutrition, uh, why was this preserved and remembered up until the 7th century AD in the Crusades as the home of Jesus? Where did that come from? And why is it, if this is just some later Catholic legend or something like that, um, well, that can't be because it just so happens to be on top of a 1st century home from the turn of the era dated to the, that was lived in and at the turn of the era to 70 AD interesting uh, things are kind of lining up yeah but I place it within the agnostic range maybe 45 to 55 percent and I, I kind of 
give it a 50-50. So I'm going to ignore this from my own analysis, from my own subjective probability values. Uh, but it's still something of note. It possibly could be the childhood home of Jesus. And on that front, I'm going to uh, give you guys the sources to look into this to so the CNN documentary as well as the peer-reviewed scholarly journal by Dr. Ken Dark the archaeologist and history uh, expert from Cambridge Oxford and from the University of Cambridge who actually discovered this thing um, so so yeah look, look into it maybe this is uh, more archaeological proof for the existence of the minimal historical Jesus it's really not looking too good for these mythicists um so yeah with that said uh this is too too much so i'm going to stop part three here and, oh and just before we end uh so in terms of the overall probability so we had two successes 65 percent for the nazareth inscription and 70 percent for the church of the holy sepulcher proving that the minimal historical jesus existed so when we can put that in plug those into bayes theorem along with the 80.92 percent we had at the end of part two we are now at about 94.85% proven that the minimal historical Jesus existed. Given the successful positive evidence is proven on a balance of probabilities within our first three parts videos. So that's Tacitus, Josephus, Lucian of Samosata, the Nazareth inscription, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, so that's where we are at the moment.